It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. April 14th, 2022. I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative. Last week, I wasn't with you guys. You had to deal with all the insanity that our society constantly brings us on your own. I hope you were dealing with it okay. Um, I was knocked out by a sickness for a couple days, but back in action now. And this week, I have an amazing interview guest. Uh, his name's Ethan Strauss. He was formerly the ESPN and athletic beat writer for the Golden State Warriors. This is a dream job for every sports fan. Okay, He was the beat writer for the most successful NBA team at its apex for ESPN, for the number one, the, the leading sports journalism brand effort to exist. And then the athletic, which was kind of the more, let's call it premium version of that, which also is very successful. And he decided to, to essentially, he bounced, he left, he went to go publish independently on Substack. He left what was otherwise every, you know, young boy even says it at any dinner party. He was always the one everyone wanted to talk to, but he said, you know, what he was experiencing inside the kind of legacy media Borg. And as I talk about on this podcast, how all facets of prestige media and even sports, nothing has been immune to the pressures of the cultural conflicts and the culture wars, making everything just just distorting narratives, a uh, lot of conformity, a lot of groupthink and making people, the people involved in these organizations do outright goofy many times dishonest, but more so in sports, just outright strange and goofy things. And for that and a variety of other reasons, Ethan went to Substack um, and has found incredible success. He spills a ton of tea over on his Substack. It's why it's one of the most popular Substacks. I think it's number 15 overall, number two in the sports category. But he gives you one, um, you know, his views in articulating how the culture wars have impacted sports and sports journalism and really an, an insider's guide to what goes on behind closed doors in the professional sports sports world um, amongst athletes. You know, there's a lot of power players in professional sports that impact the leagues and, and the stuff that sports fans see and that people talk about that people are unaware of and, and all the machinations of that. And he just he's incredibly uh, uh, shrewd in describing these things and also, you know, how sports um, how sports dovetails with the larger cultural and political conversations. And so going to be speaking with Ethan in a few. First, uh, we're going to take a little retrospective on a couple of those heated social movements of the Trump era, Me Too and Black Lives Matter. They were both back in the news recently, kind of interesting ways. I figured, okay, this this gives us a chance to really look back at these movements and see what, what did they accomplish? What did they set out to accomplish? What, you know, how did those who were at the forefronts of these organizations conduct themselves? And where did 
did where did all that chaos from the Trump era around these social movements leave us? Right with Me Too, uh, Louis C.K. wasn't this guy uh, an excommunicated villain of the Me Too movement? All of a sudden, not only does he seem to be let back in the club of polite society, but he wins a Grammy. That was, was very interesting. It seems like it didn't make uh, enough. It didn't get an, uh, enough attention that what this guy that I thought had been uh, due our new our new social mores and rules excommunicated and and was uh, all, uh, was a perpetual villain is being celebrated by uh, an institution of the entertainment industry. That was interesting. So uh, a woman named Kat Rosenfield who writes for Unheard wrote a really interesting piece analyzing that. So I break that down and elaborate on that. Black Lives Matter. Um, listen, we're not just here to find every flaw with that organization, but they there was uh, a kind of uh, some undercover journalism or exposure of Black Lives Matter and one of the s- supposed charitable organizations underlying the movement in that organization uh, had gone and bought a six million dollar house. So a lot of money that 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 organization raised a lot of money back in 2020 and also in 2021. So it serves to figure that someone should wonder where the money went. This was money was all supposed to go to societal betterment, right? But it seems to have gone to at least part of it went to a $6 million mansion. You know, hey, uh, some people might question whether $6 million gets you a whole hell of a lot in Los Angeles anymore, but it still gets you some nice digs. And they bought a pretty nice house, and that raised some eyebrows about the movement. So beyond just dunking on Black Lives Matter for this supposed corruption, I try to take a look at who is involved, what that movement set out to accomplish and why. And I had some interesting perspectives I heard from other people um, and where it all left us, right? Where do we find ourselves 18 months after the end of, not 18 months, call it 15, 16 months after the end of the Donald Trump era? Um, So all these things that were supposed to be revolutionary uh, that, that, you know, you could find the tectonic plates under, you know, uh, holding up society, shifting underneath our feet. Where did that leave us? Did it leave us with a better society? Did we solve all these problems? Um, So get into a little bit of that. And then we have Ethan coming up. So hope you guys enjoy. Okay, so the Grammys were a couple weeks ago. Nothing really that interesting to me about the Grammys. Didn't pay much attention. No big intershow slap like the Will Smith thing with the Oscars. So I didn't I didn't pay much attention. But then the next day, a headline about the Grammys really caught my eye. It was a bit of a record-scratching moment for, for a minute. Uh, Louis C.K. was awarded Best Comedy Album at the Grammys. And the reason this is interesting is because wasn't Louis C.K. excommunicated from polite society wasn't this one of the villains of Me Too who was no longer allowed to be to essentially even have a public persona or career any longer? And and that seems to be that was the result, right? If you were one of the bad guys of Me Too, if you were someone who was found out to have abused their power or committed some sort of you know sexual violation, or particularly in a in a professional setting, um, you were persona non grata. You were no longer allowed to have a career, a life, or, or you know you you were a villain, right? But here, not only is Louis C.K. allowed back in into the club, I guess, but he's being celebrated and found this very interesting and also uh, not just the, the fact that he was given the Grammy to be interesting, but the fact that it seemed to cause not much of a stir whatsoever. Like, no, this was not a big headline that he won this award. Um, so it got me reflecting on the the social causes these little mini revolutions of the Donald Trump era, right? Because it's, now we have, what, about 15 months uh, of, of space between, you know, the departure of Donald Trump from office. And, and we can kind of look back on that era with a, a little more of a clear head. I mean, it's clear we're clearly in a distinctive phase now, particularly with the pandemic over. But I mean, the Trump years were pretty wild, right? You had Me Too. You had Black Lives Matter. You had protests in the street. You had seeing these revolutionary changes in social mores or attempts to Im- 
impose those changes constantly, and Me Too was one of them. And it, the Me Too, as this movement, as this tidal wave kind of sweeping across the land and across the digital land in particular, and wiping out the careers of so many ostensibly bad guys. And then, like, we're circling back. And then there's always the question of, well, where does this land, right? What, how, do, how does this play out to its practical conclusion or to its next phase, particularly as as pertains to the men who were the villains of this of this movement, right? So Harvey Weinstein, we all know, you know, he's in jail right now. Bill Cosby was an in, was a weird one because he got let out of jail on a technicality, a correct legal um, legal. Uh, result, I, I might add, but a technicality. But he's old, and you know he's kind of he, he's so old and decrepit that nobody really pays attention. But Louis C.K. is a guy in the prime of his career. Is one of if you're looking at the guys who were most affected by Me Too, he's one of them. And here he is once again being celebrated by you know a, a faction of elite culture that had uh, a, you know essentially uh, you know submitted to a new set of values that would not allow these people even to participate in this in this world. I mean, Louis C.K. had to go release his comedy specials on his own website. Like He wasn't given a deal by a Netflix or a studio. He had all his projects shelved. So I found that really, really interesting. And, you know, as we look back on Me Too and this aspect of this super volatile, high temperature, heated, chaotic Trump era, uh, I find I find this kind of a watershed moment. So someone else who, who seemed to find it interesting as well was a writer named Kat Rosenfield. She was writing for Unheard um, and she wrote a piece kind of ruminating on this called Louis C.K. Won't Be Cancelled. And she's kind of reflects on Me Too and also on where it may have been right, been wrong, or in, in what way that it did go wrong resulted in the oddity of Louis C.K. Um, becoming now a celeb- being celebrated by a, an organ of elite culture. Um, so it also got me thinking to a piece that I thought was really insightful about all of this from, that was written during the Trump era. Uh, Ross Douthat, like I mentioned him a lot, uh, a great columnist, he wrote a piece in 2018 called An Age Divided by Sex. And this was about a year after the the kind of, you know, the commencement of Me Too and like the really heated moment. I mean, everyone remember what after that Harvey Weinstein piece came out. I mean, it was about a three to five month period where it was an absolute tsunami, a tidal wave of accusations of sexual impropriety, of abuses of power made against powerful men, whether in the corporate ranks, um, from the arts. I mean, I think in Time Magazine tried to tally it up. They called it about 415 high profile incidents of Me Too uh, taking out someone's career. And I mean, we can get into, you know, we can get into the the standards of this. I mean, what actually occurred, it was and I think where a lot of people at this point in reflection understand that there was you know pure hysteria in lumping in all these people who did things that might have been wrong but fractionally as wrong as what Harvey Weinstein did and lumping them all in together and you know while they might may not have ended up in jail that it was a generally one size fits all punishment so anyways Douthat in 18 um, wrote this piece called an age divided by sex and the theory one uh, you know what he posits is that and this is something that he had actually you know put forth previously was that the Donald Trump era where there was all this talk of racism and you know race and ethnicity as being the real heated dividing line that no it was actually a battle of the sexes that what was going on during the Trump era was really 
kind of a battle over who gets to to create the boundaries of behavior between men and women or around men and women in professional settings. And, and that was the defining battle of the Trump era. And he might not be wrong. I mean, I think he makes a lot of good points. And, you know, he puts it in terms of sexual politics in that we now, you know, he's framing it that, that in, in 2022 or 2017, 2018, you know, okay, so historic back up for a second. Historically, those trying to impose punishments for sexual impropriety were the conservatives, the Puritans, that those acting against, uh, you know, kind of more lascivious um, in kind of a sex and booze, you know, more promiscuous manner uh, and everything that leads up to promiscuity, the people trying to snuff that out were the Puritans and the conservatives. And that had been a feature of American life since its inception all the way through the sexual revolution, you know, through the, the hangover from that in the 70s and 80s. So instead, bring us to the 90s, 2000s and 2010s. And you've got, you know, an era there the prudes lost, right? The Puritans lost. We have a fairly freewheeling, um, uh, libertine, sex and booze era, a lot of sexual imagery, hookup culture, all of that. And that now, you know, doubt that saying, well, okay, both sexes are now voluntarily uh, buying in, opting into the sex and booze hookup culture lifestyle and that culture. But now it's, you know, the, it, the, objection from men is that now you're saying both sides, both sexes are participating in this, but only one has to deal with, uh, live by the boundaries of this, right? I think uh, the way that he put it um, in terms, he actually framed it in terms of uh, 80s movies, right? So he's saying that uh, to put this disagreement in terms familiar with 1980s movies, the feminist perspective wants to purge revenge of the nerds or 16 candles of their elements of rape culture, like the idea that it's okay to have sex with a girl while she's blacked out drunk, but keep the basic sexual freedom on display in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So now you're you're getting a feminist imposition of sexual boundaries, right? And that seems to allow for a lot of freewheeling sexual behavior on the part of females, you know, like sex and booze. Uh, naked chicks everywhere, this and that, a lot of sexual imagery and, and, you know, and a lot of promiscuity, but men can't act on that promiscuity and that more, you know, free, uh, freewheeling environment in ways that they have historically. And when I'm, in what I just said, I'm not necessarily saying that's good or bad, but doubt that is laying that these these are the the terms of engagement over this battle of the sexes in the 2010s in the Trump era, um, and it's kind of a competing moralism, right? And in terms of a balance of it, in terms of where both sides should be making some compromises, I think he had a lot of perspective. He says uh, thus, the Puritanism of conservatism uh, conservatism would be more admirable, more fully moral, if religious conservatives had a stronger appreciation for the reality of sexism, the value of female leadership, and the need to seriously correct for the ways ideals of chastity often punished women more than men. Fair enough. You know, the ideals of chastity did more often punish women than men historically. Um, sexism is a thing. And, you know, we need to be more accommodating of the fact that places and allowance and space for women to take positions of leadership in the art sciences, corporate world, what have you. And then conversely, the Puritanism of feminism would be more realistic if it could acknowledge that crucial differences between men and women aren't just an artifact of sexism and that the costs that promiscuity imposes and the unhappiness it breeds might actually be woven into the deeper natures of how both sexes love and mate and reproduce. And that, you know, to a certain extent, the reason that men are more pr uh, promiscuous and more geared towards promiscuity is not some is not some so, you know, social con construction made out of football and beer commercials. Right. It's because men 
are, you know, men generate the seed and plant the seed and women carry the fertilized seed, right? That just is a different biological constructs, right? Doesn't mean women have to go uh, uh, wear, you know, skirts down to their ankles and never leave their home, right? That's not what we're talking about, but there are biological differences between the sexes and that those instruct why the sexes, you know, may operate differently in terms of sexual freedom and promiscuity. That's pretty sensible, pretty sensible halfway there, right? So, okay, so bringing it back to Kat Rosenfield's piece and Louis C.K., and the question becomes like with, you know, with Me Too, what was really going on? What were we really trying to accomplish? To a certain extent, and I think anyone who's being honest about this can look back at this, and to, it, it, to a certain extent, a lot of, you know, there was a certain class of women and cohort of women who took advantage of the outrage around Weinstein and then a handful of other of the true, you know, the true villains of Me Too and uh, and and just use that for, you know, used as, as almost corporate espionage, right? Oh, I want to take out, you know, one of the executives in my executive ranks who might be above me in a corporate hierarchy. Boom. You know, we get he, he made some off color joke at some company retreat, you know, three years ago. He's done right now. He cannot survive that. Anyone, if you're not, if you're going to pretend that that didn't happen often, like you got to go. Uh, that's bullshit, right? I mean, there's a an actor named Scott Thompson. He's a, a gay actor. He's on uh, Kids in the Hall. He was you know, on Larry Sanders show. And he was interviewed on a kind of a feminist podcast around the Me Too era. And somebody says, hey, as a gay man, I can say this where straight guys can say this is like, listen, let's be honest. Some women right now are using Me Too as a weapon and really being assholes about it because they know that it, that, that anything is indefensible, right? And also they know that uh, that the same punishment is going to be is going to be applied no matter the violation. Like you lose your job, right? Everybody who gets accused, even semi credibly, of anything having to do with Me Too in 2017, 18, you're losing your job and everything you've worked for. And so where where Cat, a lot of where she focuses on, okay, well we we were trying to punish people. So what did we expect? Like what what did uh, you know the people the the participants in Me Too, you know, who gets to decide when someone is allowed to have a career again? Um, and so here's what one way that she put it. Meanwhile, not only did those who'd canceled the comedian, meaning Louis, continue to act as if his redemption request was theirs to reject or approve, they also adamantly refused to sketch out a framework for how a Me Too'd man might return to normal life. When pressed, if not now, when, if not like this, then how, the answer was a shrug. Who knows, and more, more importantly, who cares? And I think what she's, what she's getting at is kind of the callousness and the cavalier attitude that people took during Me Too towards the punishment, towards ruining people's lives, right? And that there was a lot of behavior that should have been labeled taboo or unacceptable. Listen, I mean, just, hey, my my personal thinking here, um, I think, you know, there was a lot of overreach on Me Too, but I'm generally like, hey, I, I think people, if you're going to engage in any sort of romantic or sexual behavior with anyone that you are, that you work with, who is lower, you know, that reports to you or is below you on a hierarchy, you got to be really careful with that stuff. And I think some some rules do not, you know, some rules apply there that don't, you know, do not uh, apply when there's not that type of professional relationship. And I think that's kind of what was operating with Louis C.K. It was like, all right, he, he did... Uh, it, it is both a, it is a mitigating factor to what Louis C.K. did that the women that he you know that he masturbated in front of that's what he did he masturbated in front of I believe it was five female comedians apparently they all consented they all said yes so okay 
that's a mitigating factor. But like, eh, you know, were they really going to say no to someone who's pretty powerful like him? Like, you know, Louis, if you got some weird, strange fetish like that, like maybe you should probably be inquiring about it uh, to women whose careers are not dependent on your approval. Like, I think that's weird. So like he did something wrong. Right. But what's the what's the punishment? What is what is one an appropriate and proportional punishment? And two, when is the punishment when's the punishment over? Right. Jail, even, you know, for actual sexual assault, for robbery, for murder. Eventually you get out of jail. Right. So um, and I think that what got people got swept up in the hysteria is the idea that these people were excommunicated forever. And that's what's so interesting or just noteworthy about Louis C.K. being, like I said, let let back into the club and celebrated is that like it seemed three months ago uh, had someone asked anybody about Louis C.K., you would have felt that he was still on the naughty list. Right. When he came back. Um, in 2018, he tried to start doing a couple shows. I mean, he started appearing at a couple comedy comedy clubs and doing some bits. And some of it was a tongue in cheek assessment, you know, view on what happened to him in his career. And there was just outrage, you know, the the entire comedy. You know, it was was going to come to Louis C.K.'s defense. I mean, uh, uh, it it was there was a bunch of kind of cultural think pieces on too soon. It was too soon for Louis C.K. to try to be forgiven and to have a career again. So okay. Um, that seemed to be the that seemed to be the uh, response in 2018. Like I said, he'd had he had to release all of his comedy specials, including the one that he won the Grammy for on his own website. I mean, he had done some of that before, but you know, Netflix was not giving Louis C.K. a special, right? And so we go from this you know this period where these a person like Louis CK has you know he's been he's he's been booted out he still has the scarlet letter on him and it seems like without anybody's permission or without anybody no other indicators that he was forgiven by whoever is supposed to be forgiving him um he's not it's like nothing ever happened no he he's someone who is a viable candidate for a grammy nomination and a grammy win i mean that's it's kind of wild don't you think and it does kind of speak a little bit to i mean it's got to inform it's got to inform some of If you're looking at the story of Me Too, of what it accomplished, what changes it had on society, what impact it had, the fact that Louis C.K. kind of out of nowhere after a couple quiet years came back and was celebrated by industry institutions and organs, I mean, that seems to be to that seems to say some things about the Me Too movement, um, the way that Rosenfeld put it. More importantly, the refusal of Me Too gatekeepers to even imagine that the men they toppled might not stay gone forever is exposing the movement itself as something far less groundbreaking than its most uh, fervent adherents might have hoped for. The promise of a better, fairer, more ethical framework for women's workplace equality simply never came to pass, not least because we could not bring ourselves to abandon the fantasy of throwing transgressors into the bin and letting them rot. So what she's saying is that it became about punishment and revenge. It became it, it became malicious and ill spirited. It wasn't about, you know, it, it essentially it leveraged the outrage around a true grotesque animal uh, uh, and monster like Harvey Weinstein, who just abused and abused so many women. It was a known, you know, it was the uh, uh, hiding in plain sight in the, the entertainment industry for decades. It used the outrage that was that was stirred up around 
you know, Weinstein and a couple other of the true monsters and used just as a, you know, as a to gleefully punish and get revenge on anyone who uh, on anyone who had caused any grievance whatsoever. And when it descended and that's how these things work, right? These 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 social media campaigns, these pseudo revolutions and real revolutions, they really descend into something gross and malicious very quickly because people get off on the punishment. They get off on the revenge of being a, of having that power over the people that they perceive as enemies. And the Me Too movement seems to have, you know, le, uh, kind of leaned itself more on that, on the punishment than on kind of making a fair society. And I don't want to say that as a complete blanket statement. I can acknowledge that I'm sure that there are now some general guardrails in certain realms of corporate America, particularly in the entertainment industry, where, you know, some men who might have contemplated some unsavory behavior simply self-censor and don't go there, right? So, okay, that's a good thing, certainly. But you know, really, was Me Too a true success, particularly in light of what it it the it promised to do or what it was claiming to do in 2017 at its height? And the way the fervency, the fever pitch, the temperature at which this was running seemed to suggest that there was that these problems were so widespread that they needed eternal, universal, constant vigilance. And it's like all these things. It's like, okay, well, well, everyone's posting about it incessantly for a couple months, and then everybody forgets about it. So, okay, was it as important as you thought, as everyone pretended it was uh, back when everyone was posting about it? And this cycle keeps on repeating itself, right? Um, so, as Rosenfield goes on, and in our focus on punishment above all, we abandoned the principles that any real working system of justice requires, of proportionate punishments that fit the crime, of fairness and humility, of a path back into grace for those who have transgressed but atoned. Love how she put it. Instead, the movement has been reduced to a, re a revenge-seeking apparatus that takes grievances at one end and produces the instant gratification of an internet outrage cycle at the other. Man, I think that's fantastic. Reduced to a re revenge-seeking apparatus that takes grievances at one end and produces the instant gratification of an internet outrage cycle at the other. Is that repeating itself over and over in other realms of society? I think it is. What we got was a ritual spanking machine. And while some people might be sustained by this, riding the outrage roller coaster from one cancellation to the next, it's depressing to see it come to this. Even a Louis C.K. and his Grammy Award laugh all the way to the bank. There you go. That's it. This this is what this will be the legacy, at least a piece of the legacy of Me Too. And I, I it's going to be interesting to see how these people are handled. When does Louis C.K. get a, a deal with a major media company? It's going to be odd for him to be on the no service list at this point. The guy won a freaking Grammy. The Grammys honored this man. How if some if Netflix is trying to make the case that oh wait this guy is too toxic and it does not represent the values and he's someone that we can't do a deal with. I mean it's kind of that some conflicts pretty directly with the fact that the guy won a Grammy. So these types of hypocrisies, these seeming these paradoxes and whatnot, they are fascinating, particularly given uh, uh, the, you know as we look back on some of the chaotic moments and movements of the Trump era to a more let's call it you know an era of malaise where we've we've tipped from chaos into malaise right so we now can look back on these instances with a clear head but we're also seeing a lot of the hypocrisies come to light so that was it for me too and oddly enough you know another one of those movements the black lives matter movement a lot of interesting newsworthy items about that that also expose some of these hypocrisies um so i'm gonna be talking about that in just a minute 
Okay, so the other tentpole social movement of the Donald Trump era for sweeping social change, Black Lives Matter, that was also in the news this week. So just like me too, I think this is an opportune time. We've had some time. Uh, we have some distance from the Trump era and from the height of the movement to take a look at what it accomplished, what its aims were, the people involved, um, how they turned out or, or how they conducted themselves, and really get a little bit of a retrospective here, and particularly this week as a story was released in New York Magazine, which is actually a fairly liberal public publication about Black Lives Matter purchasing a $6 million mansion, I guess you could call it, here in Los Angeles, and a lot of interested parties wondering how it was purchased, for whom, and how it was being used, right? So, okay, this is not just to sit here and dunk on Black Lives Matter because they've been revealed to be living larger than people might assume some charitable organization should be living. That's not what this is about. I want to actually take a look at what this movement was, what this organization was, and where it landed. Where did it... which direction did it drive American society, both at its height, in its heyday, and as we now sit, you know, maybe 12 to 18 months after that? So a, an interesting conversation that I had an understanding, you know, from an outsider's perspective as a Caucasian, uh, what was the purpose of Black Lives Matter and how the African-American community saw it. And I interviewed a gentleman named, uh, you know, Detective Rafer Owens um, back during uh, the summer of 2020. Rafer Owens is a member of the Sheriff's Department down in Compton and a community preacher at the community church down in Compton. So he has his fingers, uh, he has his fingers on the pulse of the community in the inner city here in Los Angeles better than anyone. He even wrote a book on community relations for policing, right? So he's right in the thick of these issues. And he was postulating on Black Lives Matter both as a community leader and as a police officer, as a law enforcement official. And you know, what he said something to me is very interesting is that for a long time, the African-American community had relied on church leaders, on religious leaders um, to filter their uh, to filter their social movements or, or advocate for change or to be their civil rights advocates and leaders. And that as the church had kind of descended in relevance and a lot of those church leaders no longer wanted to take up that cause, really fill, you know, take on a leadership role that Black Lives Matter kind of came along and filled that void. And I thought that was very interesting because I don't know if you guys have heard the saying, uh, leadership abhors a vacuum, right? If there's no leadership, something's going to come and fill that, film the vacuum of leadership one way or another. It might not be leadership as, you know, as is traditionally conceived of. And I think that's what Black Lives Matter did. So, okay, ostensibly, it was there to highlight uh, instances of police brutality and law enforcement um, we saw the videos, right? It was video after video. It was either law enforcement or vigilantes in the case of George uh, George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin, um, essentially abusing and, and impe- impeding on the civil rights of African-Americans, engaging in uses of excessive force and in many, many cases, deadly force. And now in the, social, uh, the age of social media where everyone has a cell phone, some of the instances of deadly force, in fact, many of them were caught on camera and there were the types of images and videos and recordings that would pull at your heartstrings and get everybody's emotions very heated regardless of the surrounding circumstances and and that is a, a lot of black lives matter and a lot of what they pushed for was a public reaction to that and that all culminated in the summer of 2020 with a video of a video that was stomach churning to watch of what seemed to be a law enforcement official very callously uh, leaning on the neck of a black individual who posed no threat at the time was subdued and that individual died and there was incredible social unrest uh, in response to that. In addition to social unrest, there was incredible financial 
uh, a transfer of funds, right? $90 million was donated, I think it was $60 million in the summer of 2020, and $90 million overall to an organization called Black Lives Matter Global Foundation Network. Um, the uh, One of the people behind, one of the leaders of that network, and also one of the originators or people who are at least credited with uh, with originating Black Lives Matter is a woman named Patrice Coulors. Um, and Patrice Coulors, who is this woman? She was at the time in 2013 a teacher at Otis College of Art and Design here in Los Angeles. Public, She taught public practice. I'm not really sure what that is. She also uh, taught social justice and community organizing at Prescott College. It seems like, you know, not someone uh, who was really in the public eye at some t- at such time, but I'm not entirely sure how things kind of, you know, went viral around her social media presence, but she tweeted out Black Lives Matter. And within any, you know, within a year or so, she was opening up chapters of what she you know wanted to be a decentralized organization all over the country. And Black Lives Matter was picking up quite a bit of steam in 2014 and 15. Um, so, you know, we, we seeing what occurred during the Trump era that pe- that this organization was highlighting instances of police brutality and deadly and excessive force. Um, but then if, you know, if you look a little closer, okay, what else were they advocating for? Because you, you people who donated money to that organization during 2020, that $90 million came from somewhere. What did people think that they were donating to? So, Patrice Coulors, I mean, she has a long history uh, of involvement in, you know, Marxist-related organizations. Um, Her uh, her public statements, you know, are kind of wedded and point to a lot of Marxist beliefs. And I I don't want to throw around terms like communism and socialism and Marxism very lightly, but like she's not exactly trying to hide it. I mean, she, she comments on this quite a bit. In 2015, she described herself as a trained Marxist. She was involved with a gentleman named Eric Mann, who was uh, a member of the Weather Underground domestic terrorist organization and made no bones about being a Marxist-Leninist, right? And she says that Eric Mann was her was her mentor. And then if you go look around a lot of the literature around the Black Lives Matter organization, it didn't just talk about police brutality and law enforcement. It talked about breaking down all systems of the American capitalist system in society and had a very anti-capitalist message in response to the suggestion that would Black Lives Matter meet with sitting president at the time, Donald Trump. Um, Patrice Coulars mentioned that that would be meeting, would be like meeting with Hitler as Trump is, and I quote, literally the epitome of evil, all the evils of this country, be it racist, racism, capitalism, sexism, or homophobia. Okay. Um, that's certainly a, a purview that a lot of people had on Donald Trump, but capitalism keeps on coming into the conversation from the people involved with Black Lives Matter, in particular Patrice Coulors. Um, she doesn't seem to be much of a fan of a capitalist system, yet this organization that she is at the forefront of, the, the Black Lives Matter Global uh, Foundation Network, raised $90 million in the summer of two, in, in 2020. So the idea is that this is a charitable organization, it's that money is supposed to go to certain charitable causes. So what what causes was it supposed to go to? Where is that money supposed to go? How is it supposed to solve the issues and the problems that Black Lives Matter was bringing to light? From all intents and purposes, would seem that you know whoever gave money to that organization wanted that money to go towards solving that those problems, right? And however, I, I'm not even inter- entirely sure how they would conceive of using those funds to go solve those problems. But I, I'd imagine if you ask the vast majority of people who donated that $90 million, that's what they wanted. 
but we can't really seem to track where the money went, right? And these stories keep on popping up of Patrice Coulors and Black Lives Matters organization uh, having involved in some you know pretty heady real estate deals. I mean, last year in 2021, it was revealed that Coulors now uh, own four residential properties um, all over Los Angeles, including a $1.4 million uh, home in Topanga Canyon. Not that $1.4 million necessarily gets you, you know, uh, uh, the palace for a palace in Los Angeles anymore but Topanga Canyon that gets you a pretty nice house right um so I mean it's it's always kind of a push and pull over these the leaders of these social movements who don't seem to be very much a fan of capitalism yet seem to be fine taking the spoils of capitalism when those are available to them and then it pops up this story this week that Black Lives Matter Global Foundation Network has a six million dollar house in Los Angeles and like hey 1.4 doesn't get you that much six million gets you a pretty goddamn nice house this house was purchased in 2020 and in fact it was purchased just after Black Lives Matter uh, uh, received received tax exempt status as a 501c3 so they don't have to pay taxes because it's a charitable organization because they've proven to the IRS or at least made the case to the IRS that there that that the funds that go towards this network and this group are for charity are for social causes they are not for business or commercial purposes or personal enrichment yet right after getting tax exempt status they go ahead and buy the six million dollar mansion that bet then begs the question what are they using this mansion for they claim that this is a quote-unquote place for creatives and those who feel threatened it is a campus with the intention for it to serve as housing and studio space for recipients of the black joy creators fellowship so apparently it's supposed to be i guess a content house i guess they considered this this was like the hype house right this is a freaking tiktok house where a bunch of content creators and uh having to you know involved or associated with Black Lives Matter are going to come and create content, and that's supposedly going to further the causes of social justice um, or reduction of police brutality or the ceasing of the use of of deadly force against uh, African American individuals by the police. Although I, I would seem that you know if you don't believe the police should be shooting anybody, then it shouldn't really be just directed towards one ethnic group. Um, but that's what they claim this house was for. It seemed like it, not so sure that it fits within the framework or sensible or best practices of a charitable organization that they should be buying a $6 million mansion to create content in. Yet, this is their story. Um, even beyond that today, in response to that, so Patrice Coulor, she was asked about this on a panel today, and she said that it's triggering when she hears about federal transparency laws. So if there is a form called Form 990 where every charitable organization that is tax exempt is supposed to disclose its donors and its expenditures, right? So the people that donated to this fund and this organization can find out where the money goes. Apparently, Black Lives Matter Global Foundation Network did not file a Form 990 in either of 2020 or 2021. Patrice Coulors, in response to you know this revelation that a charitable fund, a charitable foundation is supposed to disclose where the money it received went. She found that, and I'm, I'm not kidding, this is what she said. Um, she said, charity transparency laws are deeply unsafe. Um, she believes hearing about IRS Form 990 is triggering. She says, this doesn't seem safe for us. This 990 structure, this nonprofit system structure, this is like deeply unsafe. This is being literally weaponized against us, against the people we work with. So, once again, it, we're trying to do an honest audit of Black Lives Matter, right? So we're seeing, okay, 
they claim that they, they claim that they were. Tr- this is the problem that they were intending to solve. So, did they direct their efforts towards solving that problem? And also, to the extent that they were raising a lot of money and getting people out of the goodness of their heart, who are in trying to be charitable and generous and to solve a problem that Black Lives Matter claimed was at crisis level, are is that money going towards valid? valid purposes and it really seems like patrice coolors has no interest in that right if the claims that this money is enriching the people involved in black lives matter more than going to to solve uh issues of police brutality uh, or other social justice issues i mean it's getting tougher and tougher to make the case that it's being used for valid purposes right um so then we look at the actual state of let's call it the use of deadly force by law enforcement against African-American individuals or or people in general, right? Um, And so it turns out in 2021, the Washington Post is the publication that kind of recounts and holds up the best database of uh, officer-involved shootings. They've got a database every year. Um, Apparently, there were more shootings in 2000. 2021 had the most officer-involved shootings uh, uh, of any year since they started keeping this database back in 2015. So I I want to pose this question. During the years, let's call it 2014 through 2021, it seemed like every six weeks, every two, three months, there was another high-profile um, video, social media video or, or, or office in, or, or let's call it body cam captured video of what seemed like either outright police brutality or really questionable decision to use deadly force by a police officer against an african-american individual those videos were popping up constantly um there was but then you know and, and for the most part um the public narrative around those was that okay even in instances where it was kind of on on you know kind of a, an edge case where it was of questionable judgment whether or not the officer should have used deadly force they didn't really question that this was a problem right then late 2020 pops up and the jacob blake incident in wisconsin pops up and you know it's an officer involved shooting he the the uh, uh the victim who did not get killed he was paralyzed but he was it was not fatal force jacob blake um is shot it seems like he is unarmed but it then turns out that he has a knife um it turns out that the officer tried to subdue him in other ways shapes and forms and that he was actually in the process of kidnapping some children right um and you look at that and and people started to perk their ears up a little bit and said well wait a second are, are these really instances of injustice or are these instances of law enforcement using some harsh but in you know but justifiable force against people looking to do really dangerous things but their riots it was still we were still in the wake we still the the 2020 election had not occurred yet donald trump's still in office there's riots all over wisconsin in the midwest and we kind of put you know society and black lives matter decided to put jacob blake in that category of one of these horrific tragic events and instances of police brutality that they can point to in trying in uh, forwarding their their thesis that this is a crisis level incident that warrants people donating $90 million. Then uh, April 2021, another incident uh, uh, incident pops up. Micaiah Bryant, um, two teenage girls, uh, a cop gets called to a scene where teenage girls are fighting and one of the girls is literally swinging a knife in the motion of swinging a knife at another girl in a manner that if connected would very likely have yielded fatal results and the officer uh, the officer shoots Micaiah Bryant while she's in like literally in motion of stabbing this other girl um, and then it, that was there, there was a very strange reaction to that because it seemed like the activist class Black Lives Matter, 
um, and and the media in general, there was a quick spasm to try to run that blueprint all over again. The the George Floyd, you know, the similar to George Floyd or Philandro Castile um, or any other number of these high profile incidents of officer involved shootings against African Americans. But then everyone's like, whoa, 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 wait a second, whoa, this is this is a little while, you know, this one. He literally saved this other the cop literally saved this other girl's life by shooting the uh, the girl wielding the knife. Um, and really, there was nothing else the cop could have done. And we, we're not turning this cop into another villain. I think LeBron James decided to get in and even kind of put the the police officer in a meme in a, in a, in a, a kind of in the sights of a target in a meme. And then even he had to go ahead and pull that down and apologize. And it seemed like everyone realized, OK, wait a second. We have this instinctual reaction to every officer involved shooting involving an African-American that makes it to the press and that we just assumed that the cop uh, uh, exercised excessive force and that it was an unjustifiable murder. But wait a second. Okay, we clearly went too far here and we're just going to kind of retreat back into, we're, we're going to retreat on this one a little bit. And that seemed to be what happened. Then oddly enough, has there been a high profile officer involved shooting or fatality since then? Think about we're about, we're about eleven months since this Makai Bryant incident. Has there been one of these outrage spurring, high profile, just disgusting? Looks like an execution from some you know some fascist, ill trained, racist cop. Has there been one of those? We were having these every couple months for years, and then since Makai Bryant, we haven't had any of them, which is interesting, right? Um, and then if you look, then that that begs the question: Why haven't we had any? Is it because police officers? simply aren't using deadly force any longer? Or is it because there is a media apparatus and a media machine and an activist network and machine in place to foment outrage around these incidents? And after realizing that in response to the Micaiah Bryant, uh, Micaiah Bryant incident, that they had kind of lost credibility because the everybody's appetite to react to these things was lower because we're saying, okay, wait, this went too far, that, they, that this machine was no longer active. So I don't know. I think you should... Sw I would... I would suggest or I would posit to my audience, swirl that around. Wonder why, kind of scratch your head and, and consider why there haven't been any high-profile incidents of these over the last 11 months, despite the fact that apparently there were a ton of officer-involved shootings over the last year. So I think that's an interesting question to pose. Um, beyond that, yes, it does seem like public sentiment has turned against the Black Lives Matter movement, and a lot of it is because, hey, if you're trying to be the vessel for their goodwill, for their compassion, that you say you are have, I have identified this channel uh, of in, of injustice, and I want you to donate to my cause or give me resources so I can address that. Well, it's really looking a couple years, you know, about now nearly two years past the George Floyd incident, that people, the public are really starting to wonder where the money and where the resources that were donated towards Black Lives Matter went. And once people start asking questions and start picking and prying a little bit more then you, a lot, in a lot of these situations, once the veil has been lifted or once you've checked under the hood, people haven't really liked what they have seen. And I think that's what a lot of people not is not even necessarily racially distinct, right? Uh, the individual who wrote the New York uh, piece revealing the $6 million property purchase uh, uh, for Black Lives Matter Global Foundation Network is an African-American. There's a lot of African-Americans on social media saying, hey, we feel somewhat duped by this organization. They they traded, they raised money off our pain and suffering and causes in our name, and they don't really seem to be doing right by the community and the causes that they seemed that they were pushing for. So that seems to be where the tenor of that conversation is currently. Um, so that's for both of them. 
them. Listen, once again, I'm not here just to be dunking on the so the liberal social causes of the late 2010s, early th- 2020s. Okay, use your own judgment. Thinking back on these these movements, what they prompt in terms of both. The extent of the problem that they claim they were there to address, how grave a problem it was, and the types of solutions that they pushed to and advocated for and claimed to being able to be imposed, were the problems actually to the extent that they claimed that they were, and were their solutions effective, and how did they conduct themselves on implementing those solutions? So I think that is a a useful exercise now in looking back over recent American life. So Patrice Coulors, $6 million mansion. Black Lives Matter Global Foundation Network doesn't seem to be too intent on filing its Form 990. We'll have to see what the IRS thinks about that. The Biden administration, who knows? The Biden administration could call off the IRS and say, I don't know. I don't know if we want want to be looking too deeply into this. But if the media, um, if if this story stays in the media, it's going to be hard for them to continue to operate seemingly outside the shadows and Patrice Coulors, you know, whether she likes it or not, is going to have to file that Form 990 and disclose where the money towards the Black Lives Matter movement and her foundation went. Should be interesting. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is the prevailing narrative. I am here with my good friend, Ethan Sherwood Strauss. He was formerly the beat writer for the Golden State Warriors for both ESPN and The Athletic. He is the author of the best-selling uh, book on the Golden State Warriors dynasty, The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty, and now has one of the top uh, substacks, top top sites on Substack, the House of Strauss. It is number 15 overall on Substack and number two in the sports category. Ethan, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me, man. That's a hell of an introduction. I like stretching it. I I love that I'm top 15. (laughs) I don't know if that makes me one of. I don't know at what point you're not one of anymore, but to be among some of those names, Matt, some of those lofty names, uh, the political journalists definitely clean up overall. I'm, I'm just happy, happy to be mentioned, as they say. No doubt. Well, I think it's interesting and obviously informs a lot of this discussion of why a sport, why in particular your sports substack has and has been so popular. Um, maybe for a second, if you could just describe what House of Strauss is and, and your ang- you know, your approach towards it in your own words. Ooh, this is tough because I never really worked out an elevator pitch for it. Um, I've mm-hmm. just always been interested in a lot of sports adjacent issues, such as where it overlaps with culture. And where it overlaps with business. Now, for the cultural part, you hear that sometimes, but when it comes from a prestigious publication, they usually only mean how it overlaps with the specific perspective that they they yeah. bang on about. And it seemed as though, as I saw it, there were only two perspectives allowed on anything sports cultural. There was the media hive mind Borg that would just reach a consensus on Twitter about how offensive or bad something was in some instances or just what the correct good person opinion was. And then there was Outkick the Coverage, which is explicitly MAGA aligned. And I think that they had so much space granted to them from uh, the media Borg that they would sometimes really go in on a story that, that wasn't being covered and they would, you know, get a lot from that. But there was really that's that leaves a lot of territory. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of space. It, it's a, and I don't want to offend anybody, but it is kind of true on so many issues. It's just. One opinion, one opinion allowed uh, whenever it's controversial. And so when I saw that happening, I thought, you know, I just want to explore the space. I just want to see what I can say and see if it resonates. And I think what maybe got me a little bit of an inkling, Matt, was I wrote an article in 
August of 2020 uh, about how the NBA had lost effectively half its viewership on mm-hmm. network TV games within eight years. And I, I went over kind of the broad sweep of that. You know, it's sort of almost taken for granted now that that happened. Yeah. Nobody else was saying that it happened at that point. And it wasn't any kind of uh, Woodward and Bernstein, uh, somebody passing me a file in a parking garage. I just looked at the numbers and added them up and nobody else was talking about it. So it it resonated. And I also actually talked about some of the goofy shit that was happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know how many people listening to you follow sports that much or the NBA. So I'll just say. Obviously, 2020 summer, hot and heavy summer, every major corporation saying ridiculous things, everybody terrified, uh, afraid to get fired. The NBA in an insecure position because they need these guys to play in the playoffs. COVID is a fear, and they're worried in a majority black league that they are not being properly sensitive to police shootings as an issue. Mm -hmm. And it just produced this goofy kind of activism that seemed to be daring us to laugh at it, where they had these social justice jerseys that derived their names from a variety of... um, from a list, you know, you couldn't go too far outside the boundaries. And it was patently absurd. Like the back of the jersey yeah. would say, "Economic, economic freedom." Yeah, like yeah, economic freedom. Three, economic freedom. <laughs> just swatted uh, education reform, and then <laughs> it became a status symbol where the big stars like LeBron would say, "No, fuck that. Mm-hmm. I just have my own name." So you had guys out there with their own name. You had guys out there who had the same social justice jersey. So that was confusing. And then the best was. Uh, Luka Doncic and I caught some hell for finding this amusing or even pointing it out but he had I believe the Slovenian word for equality which is a very long consonant rich word that I cannot pronounce and I'm just watching this young superstar and I'm thinking this is your showcase event people are watching and they're they're saying that guy with the e name I can't pronounce looks pretty good like they don't know who he is and (laughs) what the fuck is this accomplishing what is this accomplishing in real life that that Luka Doncic has a Slovenian word for equality or any of these slogans or labels and it just seemed like that was this perfect metaphor for how we were being fed so much sanctimonious absurdity from corporations and universities people of influence and you weren't even allowed to laugh at it this was clearly funny above everything else it was funny and Mm so just when I when I wrote about the overall ratings decline, I wrote about some of the factors. This wasn't the only factor, but it was one of the factors that the league had gotten very preachy and absurd. Um, it resonated and it just racked up subscriptions. And that gave me an inkling that, hey, maybe if I just talk from my own perspective, I'll find an audience and I can completely determine whatever I do every day, which seemed pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think we, we know that the kind of buzzwords, the catchphrases of the that that are surround the conversation about sports now being the as you put it in one of your pieces, the Overton window from the political and cultural world is now being implanted on the sports world. Right. It's shut yep. up and dribble and stick to sports. And the question of whether or not those both athletes and those in sports media should be commenting on matters uh, you know, on social causes, on politics, on things not related to the sport. And for better, for worse, I mean, at this point, it's it's kind of settled science whether or not they will. Right. And then mm-hmm. the question becomes, should they? And is the impact and, and uh, to a certain extent, this podcast is you know, from a variety of categories, um, how 
cult, certain you know how cultural narratives or narratives that in the culture war start to uh, start to impact various category you know seemingly distinct categories and you in your world and what your substack is is how that impacts sports and how sports impacts yeah. that right and under and underlying all of that it seems to be how social media and the way that we communicate and which social media sites are being used by the people involved in these you know quote unquote culture wars across all these different categories um, you know how Twitter is used, how group chat technology is used, um, how Substack is used, and how that that the kind of engineering and the architecture influences the conversation. And I think that's probably um, a bit of a long winded description of somewhere of oh. where your where your Substack resides and why it's been popular because you articulate. You know, a lot of sports fans are sitting around wonder they they, they either instinctually gravitate towards hey these athletes should be able to say whatever they want and they they you know uh, and they're all Muhammad Ali and. 1967 and great for them for speaking up or um screw colin kaepernick uh stick to sports shut up and dribble and uh, i but it, you know in one in one acknowledging the reality that there's no way that we're going back to a shut up and dribble era but two that these players yeah. and the the participants in social causes in the late 2010s early through 2020s are not Muhammad Ali and trying yeah. to get them to play that role comes off in the absurd cool. manner that you just described. That needs to be articulated. And I think that's what you're doing. You're trying to yeah. articulate that. And nobody wants to articulate it. I think that like so many things, uh, we can blame the boomers, right? Because I do think that we are running their software on a lot of cultural issues. And they were such an influential generation for a lot of reasons. We can compliment them. Mm -hmm. uh, you're a charismatic generation, boomers, but they took a lot of what was fashionable back then. And it seems like we're almost trying to reach back to that past and pretending that, yeah, Muhammad Ali uh, was protesting being sent off to Vietnam. I mean, mm -hmm. that's fairly legit right there. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason it resonates. When people take risks, it resonates. Uh, Colin Kaepernick could be criticized in a variety of ways. Uh, some of the things he said, for instance, and uh, the pig socks uh, he was wearing in the training camp, as I remember it. But yeah. he did risk something at that time. He eventually got rich from Nike. But I think one of the reasons why uh, he became popular is that it legitimately at that time was thought to imperil your job. And many would say it did imperil his job uh, that he took those stands. But then we start pretending as though everybody's taking some brave, bold risk when all they're doing is telling the media exactly what the media wants to hear. Um, and it's this performative subversion uh, that we are party to where we're supposed to act as though when Naomi Osaka, for instance, in the fall of 2020 is wearing uh, the names of black people shot by police on masks, that this is some subversive act that get the conversation going. She wanted to get people talking, she said, and it's often not really subversive. I mean, how subversive it could it be if it's what every if, if it's what everybody in media and corporate America in particular, yeah. it, it feels yeah. like this is every one of these. There, there's a playbook to corporate marketing in the social media age, these social media campaigns and the performative, the, the pageantry and the the kind of pageantry tactics like what Osaka did is literally just it's it's her version of a fashion influencer participating in a revolved clothing campaign. Yeah. Well, and that none of them apparently give a shit. I mean, yeah. this this point can't be made enough. Does anybody I know somebody might respond and say, hey, well, this person cares. But overall, is anybody tracking how many police shootings there are, whether they've gone down, whether they've gone up? What are the percentages? 
I don't see anything like that happening out there. Yeah. All these people, it was all they could talk about. It was all they could think about. They wanted to to give their lives to this cause and uh, cry and do uh, just just do videos healing America over this and sessions. Yeah, and it's just none of them apparently care about it because it seems as though they haven't discussed it since. It seems that they don't really have much concern for is it better by twenty percent? Is it you know worse by twenty percent? It's not on the radar, and you've got you've got this culture of people who just accept the premise that whatever the current thing is is the thing that's most relevant and the thing that must be addressed, which yeah. I find fascinating in a way that it's just accepted that people go okay well this is top of the algorithm on on twitter and you know i'm seeing it on facebook so therefore this is the news this is the biggest thing and it's so often on the basis of a discrete incident that could be happening anywhere in the country yeah i mean that that to my, that to my mind is the 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 craziest part of it how we're just kind of expected to accept the premise that these that these things are the most important thing when we're told it's the most important thing. And that any athlete participating in that, indulging that, is in effect some uh, replicating some aspect of a true freedom fighting that a Muhammad Ali in the face of just uh, in the face of literally the government trying to send him off to a war zone and just both uh, du jour and de facto racism uh, in every aspect of his life, that it's some sort of parallel, it has some sort of parallel to that. Or, or as you know, I posit, is it some, is this really just hollows? One, how subversive can you be when all of corporate America is aligned with your cause, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Muhammad Ali did not, GE did not, you know, then go mm -hmm. hire Muhammad Ali for an ad campaign after uh, yeah. he engaged in his late 60s activism, as opposed to Colin Kaepernick's been far more successful as a social justice activist than he was as an NFL quarterback. And regardless of, of how anyone wants to paint this, that, that, that he was blacklisted um, or that the reason that he doesn't have a job is because of his activism, if he had been good enough, the activism wouldn't. He was an edge case. He was on the bubble of of being relevant as a quarterback in the NFL, and the activism just kind of popped that bubble for him. But yeah. the the trajectory, Colin Kaepernick's trajectory after that, he rode this to you know uh, to unbeknownst success and and financial prosperity through you know of corporate America supports him. Nike was putting out signature shoes um, in his name, um, and that was not the type. That was not a dynamic that was active in prior. No. You know, as you mentioned, well, if we're trying to LARP the boomer era act. That wasn't that wasn't uh, apparent yeah. back then. Well, and this is part of the frustration people are feeling, even if they don't articulate it. They can sense that they are presided over by sociopaths who are using these issues as a strategy, as a marketing yeah. strategy or a path to power or a way to get them to shut up and not advocate for themselves. And they see that they're using these powerful taboos. You know, you don't you don't want to be racist. That's, you know, a bad thing to be. Yeah. And so in order to kind of try to make sure you're not hit with that label, you, you, you're going to fall in line. And so unfortunately, there are a lot of bad actors who are using that as as a tool and cynically. And so I think more and more people are starting to notice that. And I, I don't think I would care as much, Matt. I mean, look, I'm focused. I'm focused on being able to say what I want to say because I like doing that. It's, sure. it's enjoyable to me to think out loud. But 
I think these issues often get dismissed, especially by people in media, people in the New York media. They try to minimize it. They try to say, hey, it's a bunch of people whining about cancel culture. They all got together in a meeting, by the way, and they they said that people uh, talking about cancel culture is this silly thing that's dismissible, right? Uh, whining about cancel culture, the people on Substack whining about cancel culture. Um, I would love to just look at it all as some boutique issue that doesn't have any sort of negative externality. That would mm -hmm. be great if it was just frustrating, if it was just, I feel like somebody was mean to me at a cocktail party. But unfortunately, when people can't speak freely, you know, I'm reminded of uh, an improv, Del Close, saying that you're trying to operate at the top of your intelligence. Speaking freely is operating at the top of your intelligence. Mm -hmm. You're giving your best shot at what you think is happening, right? But when you're terrified and you're trying to just fit what you're saying to the current mood, you're making yourself dumber. Yeah. And we are collectively getting dumber. And unfortunately, the result of being dumber isn't just amusingly stupid decisions, though that happens as well. It, it results in real calamity. Yeah. You know, the aftermath of 2020, you're not supposed to really talk about it. You're not supposed to mention it. But we had about 10,000 extra murders over what the 2019 baseline would have been. Yeah. Uh, to say nothing of all the traffic fatalities that I think doubtless had something to do with the pullback on traffic stops and people just trying to mine the road and make sure if somebody's acting crazy that you pull them over. So that's a real consequence. And it's probably tip of the iceberg when it comes to crime because murders are the thing that you can't actually fake. So what you're seeing there, um, and I know it gets argued against, I feel like it's one of those only a smart person like you know it takes a real this is another dynamic where it, it almost takes a smart person to argue their way out of the obvious so sure. people in a status game prove how smart they are i think it had something to do with the mass riots all over america uh every mayor ripping the police uh pretty much no mayor speaking out against riots ex except for the uh, the mayor in Atlanta at the time. And I think she had she felt like she had more standing because she was she was black in a black city. Everybody else just terrified and indulging the violence. I think that had something to do with the massive murder spike. And that massive murder spike was informed by so many people terrified that they just couldn't be honest about what they were actually seeing. So that's why it matters. It's not just some silly little issue that kids on a college campus are being mean to the professor. No. It gets people killed in the end when we can't make the smartest decision that we can collectively make. And then when you look at athletes who were put in uh, the position, they have a platform because they were good at sports, right? And they're, we're now... Uh, we're now trying to construct this unquestionable uh, um, culture that they're allowed to comment on issues of substance and that they're supposed to. And that if they're not commenting on in issues of substance, that it's some that it, you know, impacts oh, they get their, pressured, pressured. Right. So but it seems that once it, it's pretty temporary. Right. Once the issue uh, escapes from public once the issue drowns out of public consciousness which it does very quickly in the social media age all, all of a sudden they're not expected to be such activists and all of a sudden they're not expected to be con commenting on issues of public importance right it's only when it's something that really catch it just it just uh, gets funneled into that social media outrage or activism quote on you know air quotes activism yeah. machine and all of a sudden they're, they're uh, the problems of 2022 right because we think of what are the problems of 2020 right 
athletes were expected to comment on those. The problems yep. of 2022, and maybe this is because it's, we're not in the Trump era anymore, athletes aren't being pressured to comment on whatever the social issues are of 2022. Does it, is that because there seems to be a backlash mm. to some of progressive activism? The issues that are popping up these days, uh, it, in fact, athletes were pressured to not comment on, for instance, the Leah Thomas issue of a a transgender yeah. swimmer um and, and this is an issue that's more directly related to actual athletic competition in fact we went quickly from an era where the athletes were pressured to comment to where athletes were pressured not to comment because it seems like the winds have shifted on public opinion a little bit i think that's part of it i also think no trump as you mentioned is a huge factor because yeah. i think that's what maybe informed a lot of the NGOs and other organizations to go full force and to, we were saying how subversive could you be um, if every company agrees with you, but those companies, I think were almost endorsing a form of subversion when they're saying, Hey, everybody get out into the streets and, you know, topple anything effectively. And I think that was informed by how Donald Trump was, I think understandably from a lot of people beyond the pale, Right. A lot of people. I mean, I always just kind of viewed Trump as uh, incompetent and somebody who would watch TV too much to be president. But for a lot of other people, maybe they had some West Wing image of the presidency or I think it's fair to be a little bit worried about somebody like Donald Trump uh, having uh, the nukes, for instance. I think that is a perspective I can understand, but it, a little it more kind erratic of, than we're looking for out of that position. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it was uh, by any means necessary. Right. We need to get this guy out all levels of uh, power structures. And so I think that there was a push to try to get athletes commenting more specifically in that direction. And I think without Trump there, there's a little bit of an easing combined with what you're saying, Matt, that uh, the political wins, the opinion wins shifted. The NBA, for instance, the aforementioned playoff bubble. They didn't just have the social justice jerseys, but they had slogans all over the court. And at some point, Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, said, we're not fucking doing that again. We're not doing that again. He made that call quick. Mm -hmm. It's because the numbers, the ratings for that finals for those playoffs were stomach turning yeah. for the people running the NBA. They were shocked at how far it fell. And so they didn't deny it internally. No, which is okay. why it's so funny to me when people argue. It's just, well, you know, argue with them because that's what they think. Okay, that's so this, what they th believe. this is interesting because you've been on this beat for a minute or two. And for our non-basketball, non-sports listener fan, non-sports fan listeners out there, so the NBA has been experiencing horrendous ratings, okay? Um, but there's this, this uh, uh you know, insistence from those commenting on the NBA, other than the man I'm speaking with right now, to deny it, to yep. it, that the narrative that and, and historically, even the people, baseball writers or football writers or those who uh, were in media surrounding one particular sport, they didn't necessarily they might have loved the sport that they were covering, but they didn't have the skin in the game to defend the performance of the sport, even if it wasn't performing mm. well, like yep. no shortage of NBA journalists were willing to acknowledge back in the 70s, the game wasn't doing well and started doing a lot better during the 80s rode the jordan wave in the 90s and then had some trouble in the immediate post jordan era nobody felt the need to deny that the league had some issues when it did right during some of its yeah. its dips now and this is a incredibly odd phenomenon everyone around the nba 
every time you bring up that they have plummeting ratings, that the the ratings trajectory of the NBA has not been good over the last six to eight years, they 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 attack. They feel the need to deflect it to look for some excuse that no, it's just that uh, oh every every sport has experienced declining ratings. Um, it's just that more people are watching on streaming services or social media, and it's this odd piece of the culture. It almost fits in with the the you know the conformity and the groupthink in the NBA, which is an odd and new phenomenon that you can't even admit that the ratings are bad, right? And you've been the one canary in the coal mine. You've been the subversive one saying, guys, no, this is really bad. Like, And yes, you can compare it to every other sport that all most other non-NFL sport, everything other than the NFL, has also experienced substantial decline. But does the NBA really want to lump itself in that category? The NBA, you know, during the incipient uh, years of the Adam Silver era, the early 2010s, really in their, their line or their uh, their story was that they were going to be able to challenge the NFL, that they were going to start yeah. impeding on the NFL as America's number one sport. And a lot of people looked around at that and said, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. They'll be able to do it. And it's been the story has not played out like that. The NFL is shredding the NBA these days. And you seem to be the only one of the few NBA journalists who's willing to acknowledge this. (laughs) Well, I I should note that they said that their their ratings were up by double digits uh, for the regular season. Now, I haven't you kind of need to check their work. And that's a whole other topic that now the broadcasters have lobbied Nielsen. They're pissed off. They feel like Nielsen should have given them better numbers during the pandemic and so the numbers have been juiced, not just for the NBA, but for all these leagues. And so mm-hmm. you're seeing some some funny ones out there. And they're also pulling fast ones where recently NBC for the Super Bowl added six million viewers to their overall viewership total because they claimed that an average of two people watch the streaming games when they watch, as opposed to CBS, who uh, CBS must really uh, just suck ass because they only have (laughs) one person watching uh, these games. So they're just juicing their own numbers. I'm not saying the NBA is doing that necessarily. I'm just saying that the numbers are getting a little funny. I do think that they're rebounding a bit, pardon the pun. I think it helped that the Warriors were good. Mm -hmm. And so we'll just see what happens with this postseason. But it's undeniable that they are in a rut that they're now climbing out of. Yeah. that it happened. I don't want to be in this position where any anytime something good happens, it disproves me. And anytime something bad happens with them, it, it proves me right. The bottom line is it happened. I felt like it was an argument that happened over a couple years where people would push back and say this or that. And then eventually the data became undeniable. And it, I think, almost culminated in Mark Cuban getting completely uh, <laughs> lambasted by Megyn Kelly, mm-hmm. who started just reading stats and facts about the viewership drop and he had no way to respond because he was used to being on Twitter and having the pithy responses uh, on Twitter. I found the whole, that whole interaction was fascinating. Yeah. He started using the same comebacks that I had seen him use on social media that only work there. And she just blinked at him and went in and he had nothing. So mm-hmm. it happened. It dropped. And I think that there's almost this fear that we can relate to some other things out there, Matt, where I think there was this emotional investment in the NBA. It does have something to do with the political valence of the NBA. It became almost a proxy for the Democratic Party and a proxy in other ways for black America. And so people brought a lot of emotional baggage to it and felt defensive on its behalf. And then something else happens where there's this fear, almost like you're a little kid. And if you say Bloody Mary, something scary is going to happen that if you describe 
what's going on. It makes it real. Mm -hmm. I think we see that in a lot of cases, in yeah. a lot of instances where there's this denialism um, where they interview conservatives uh, or people in the Midwest at the New York Times, and you'll see a bunch of blue check media people gnashing and wailing about it. And they they feel like it gets too much coverage. And it's almost like it's almost like they're it's just going to make it real. And so I felt like I was going through that almost where mm -hmm. I was just kind of tapping a chalkboard and saying, well, here are the numbers. You know, I, I don't know what to tell you. Here are the numbers. That That's that's what it is. Uh, but it was combined with this other thing, Matt, which is that the league is very aggressive about promoting their viewership ascent and they do call you they do yell at you they do bother you and then they call your bosses they mm -hmm. do that as well and they pressure your bosses and they tell your bosses to talk to you and a lot of people just don't <laughs> want to go through all that i certainly didn't enjoy it it mm -hmm. wasn't fun i didn't change what i said but i get why for a lot of people it's I cover the NBA because I like basketball. I'm not into this other weird issue. I'm just going to trust the league when they tell me things are good. Um, and, and anybody saying things are bad is is suspicious. And uh, in a way, they're right, Matt, because not only have I given a take on the viewership drop, but I've also given some other takes with you on cultural issues that I think a lot of the people in media would find to be out of bounds for some reason, even though I don't think we've said anything incorrect. Yeah. Yeah, and what you mention is how everything seems to be a proxy war uh, for politics and mm. the culture war, and that Everything. people became and that to a certain extent, like I said, that's somewhat of what I'm trying to articulate across categories on this podcast. And you focused and and done the roto rooter on on sports and are, are kind of describing and giving voice to that. I think that that's what you've in seeing the reaction to your Substack and your success there is that this was the type of thing within the framework specifically of professional and college of of professional college sports that people were a lot of sports fans noticed this stuff and were having a hard time articulating it to the level it which you were, uh, which you have, right? And that, you know, one point and, and kind of looking at where this all began, and I had forgotten about this, but it was a really interesting point you made in your piece, Clay Travis is your fault. And so Clay Travis, for those who don't know, is... Uh, if we were to, to look at the, the those who have begun, con those who are ostensibly sports media personalities but have really leaned into politics, Clay Travis would be at the forefront of that and has leaned in a more conservative direction, which is a little odd because this is a guy who I think volunteered for Joe Biden's president or Al Gore's presidential yeah. campaign back in 2000, uh, in 2000 and was uh, an Obama supporter. But as the the uh, dynamics that you know Ethan and I have described um, started to develop over the the you know early to mid 2010s. He he took his um, property Outkick Sports and really leaned it in a conservative direction. He's you know he's out of the Midwest. He's in Tennessee, um, and he's become kind of the you know public villain number one in sports media from those who work for the more traditional sports uh, uh, sports publications like ESPN or the Athletic, right? And so what you were describing is like, listen, Clay Travis is speaking to an audience that feels unspoken for that you know a lot of. Uh, sports fans either one do want people to stick to sports or two are are, are turned off or find it distasteful uh, this progressive you know rub to every issue that that a lot of all those others in sports media feel is now part you know one of their occupational uh, obligations and so you mentioned that and I have even forgot about this it all traces back to an incident with a college sports uh, a, a college uh, basketball player named Kevin Ware Kevin Ware um, had a, just a gruesome leg injury 
injury in uh, in the NCAA tournament, I believe it was 2013. And this is the first time that you really saw it where the reaction wasn't, uh, you know, on on end, let's call it college basketball. Twitter wasn't, oh, man, you know, we, we get to comment on this and that was horrendous. Oh, God, that was disgusting. Oh, his career is over. But that there was this outcry that that any commentary on um, it, that, you know, any commentary about the Kevin Ware incident or highlighting his injury was exploitive and insensitive and worthy of outrage, right? And you describe uh, and you lay out how Clay Travis, who was just kind of a, a blogger at the time, um, he he was one of the first to react to this and calling it faux rage. Uh, that he, he describes it as, in particular, what I call faux, faux rage rapidly took over Twitter and other social media sites. Faux rage is distinguished from actual outrage because it's more for show than it is for legitimate outrage. And, you know, and it's the the sports culture wars were not raging in 2013. You could kind of looking back, you could kind of see the future there and that this is what the conversation around sports would become. Yeah, it was a point where it had no political valence. That's what's crazy about it. When you look back, there's no mention about woke. There's no mention about liberals. None of that's happening. It's just somebody noticing that. There's this weird focus on empathy uh, to the exclusion of honesty and content and And traditional sports journalism of describing newsworthy events that happen in sports. Yes. And so you can almost see the break right there where he's saying this is ridiculous. They're mobbing these people, these companies and saying that you can't show the replay, but the replay is relevant to understanding what the hell just happened. And none of this makes any kind of sense. And this is almost a hysteria paroxysm right here. And in a way, that's that's a moment. That's a certain orientation that I can I guess in that case, while I wouldn't agree with Clay Travis on a range of things, I can sympathize with because that's how I feel a lot of the time. I feel like I'm not the highest empathy person. I'm not without empathy, right? I'm a human being. I have a family, but I'm not I'm not just oozing with empathy. And so when I see people commanding my empathy, trying to manipulate me on the basis of my empathy, I kind of get my back up and I go, wait a second, I want to sort this out for myself. Now, um, eventually down the road, uh, if you're a lower empathy person or you find this to be kind of hysterical groupthink, I think a lot of those people found themselves not just outside the sports mainstream, but outside the political mainstream. Uh, that became this weird, uh, this weird dividing line and you can trace it all back. And now you've got a circumstance where Clay Travis's site outkick the coverage covered the Leia Thomas situation. Uh, the, you know, as you noted, the biologically male swimmer who joined the women's team at Penn and is racking up these records and they've been covering it and the pieces have been popular. And I know, uh, from Ryan Glassfield, the New York post that when they talk about it, uh, a lot of people read and want to know about it for months, ESPN just refused to cover the story. I think they knew it was one that was uh, a bad matchup, as you might say, uh, <laughs> that they didn't want to give oxygen to because it would make their preferred side look a little bit uh, insane. Um, and now that they do, they don't they don't give any sort of sense that there is another side to this issue. If they talk about it at all, it's either with complete dispassion or pushing the agenda that this is somehow great and a celebration and fantastic but the majority of america 
is not with this. Yeah. Um, I cited polling where it's by two to one in the polling. People say no, you gotta you gotta play with your your biological your your birth gender as they call it. That's just how it's got to be. Now, popularity isn't necessarily uh, an argument for having the correct position, but there's something odd about. ESPN not even airing that, not even really giving any sort of voice to it. And you have to wonder how many people there for that particular story are falsifying their preferences. And I I will say about that particular story, it's easy to dismiss. I've discussed it with other people in sports journalism. They say this isn't important, right? This isn't important. Uh, There are more important issues. And yeah, there are more important issues than whether a biologically male swimmer is on the women's uh, team at Penn. But this issue might have a little more importance than meets the eye because we are vesting or theoretically vesting these prestigious institutions with all this cachet and power to tell us right from wrong and to tell us what the best thing to do is. If they are transparently out of their fucking minds at the Ivy League, at the NCAA, at just you know this is not just this is not just a sports issue this is this is the ivy league this is the ivy league position the ivy league position is effectively i suppose right now that biologically male people can just you know play in women's sports and i i suppose there's just nothing really wrong with that and it is Even a though, matter of civil rights and justice right yeah and to oppose it me puts you in the morally wrong position yeah you know that's effectively the ethos I mean, you're going to trust these people on climate change. You're going to trust these people on infinitely more complex issues, issues where a five year old couldn't give you a a better take as to what's going on. Again, it just seems to be that gaming of empathy where you're a bad person if you raise your hand and go, wait a second. Uh, But I mean, that's that's why I think that issue right there might be more important than meets the eye. It is, as you said earlier, canary in the coal mine, that these people have lost their goddamn minds they've lost their minds they can't be trusted uh in a way i don't know what we need matt i don't know who we need to be running things because it seems like our best and our brightest um have effectively been driven completely mad by social media it seems to be the case and also if in in terms of you know your your former colleagues and i'm sure you talked to some people whose names my listeners would know and people who work at these big companies right and uh um, and they're claiming that this is not a story of interest. And yet, and this was another piece of yours commenting on the incredibly low threshold for what constitutes a story, particularly around the NBA, that yeah. it seems like uh, Miles Brown, who's you know one of the few no-nonsense, you know, forget politically uh, his political ideology, just a no-nonsense commentator on NBA Twitter, says, uh, I think it was the, the sport where it's, it, it's never, it's never where the game's the never about the game, right? Yeah. And that... Yeah. The ESPN, if you had looked at their side scroll of the stories that they were they're publishing about the NBA, they all seem so incredibly trite and trivial um, and that, you know, the ESPN would would snatch at any human interest story that had nothing to do with actual competition. So for them to now turn around and claim that this just isn't of interest, that it's not a relevant story to, you know, uh, to uh, that's not newsworthy to the news cycle around sports seems pretty hypocritical, just seems like it's one that they knew wasn't going to go over very well with their audience yeah i think it was bad matchup and that was the reason and that gives you some insight into why is this the mandated espn and so many corporations 
as opposed to trying to maximize profit, it seems like you're trying to pace and lead your customers towards some ideological conclusion. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are feeling that unease and wondering what the hell is happening. Like, why is yeah. this? Why? How? Why is this become? Why is this become the agenda? It doesn't just seem to be. It doesn't just seem to be about business. It seems like something else. Something else is at play here. Yeah, and I think that eventually it does reach a certain breaking point i do think that a lot of people are are starting to question but a lot of people aren't you know it's it's been fascinating to me to see how many out there will just if if the right corporations a uh, signal boost a particular perspective then they're just going to go with it and that's going to be their new reality and i've been staggered to discover how many people how many people are going to do that well, you you were inside the sports media board. You worked for the biggest companies on earth. I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of the people that you talk to, a lot of your your friends and people are still caught your colleagues, even though you're independent. You talk a lot to a lot of people who still work at ESPN or other big sports media publications. To what, without naming names, to what extent are is there internal dissent from this, which may be getting not may not be aired. As uh, I don't want to say aggressively, well, yeah, or as uh, as expressly as you air it, but are the people who uh, let's call it during that is there some breakage between the Trump era and the post Trump era of those mm. who were would would be would would not express any dissent and fall completely in line on the new supposed social engineering and social justice mandate of sports media companies that are now starting to question it a little bit. Yeah, I think more people are questioning it after Trump. That is a benefit to Trump being out of the scene because everything that gets seen as helping or hurting Trump and it gets very binary. And mm -hmm. so a lot of people, I think, are more inclined to uh, either shut up or, um, you know, not not have wrong think. Uh, so I think that there is a little bit more in the back channel. There's a little bit more conversation. But I think there's a heightened awareness post-2020 that you can just get fired for not going along with whatever the vibe is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in a way it codified it because you saw these people getting fired for saying the wrong thing when these uh, corporations were in mass hysteria at that moment over race. But then it becomes something else. There's a new thing every week. It becomes uh, it becomes vaccines. It becomes I mean, and, and you're not supposed to question uh, it. You're not supposed to stick out. I mean, I know ESPN fired uh allison williams i think is her name a, a commentator uh, of theirs and she was saying that she didn't want to get the vaccine because she was young and healthy and she was she was pregnant and i can't remember the justification but i remember whatever it was i read that and i went yeah it makes sense you know you probably shouldn't fire that person uh they're handling their pregnancy in the way that they they see fit and uh but nobody speaks up nobody mm -hmm. says anything everybody is uh, either scared or maybe they're just convinced. And that's the tricky thing, Matt. I'm just always wondering how many people are falsifying their preferences uh, versus how many people just find it easier to go along with it. And this is when people go, this is, you probably get this too. It's like, well, how do you know that you're not the one who's been brainwashed, man? Yeah, like, how do you yeah. know? And it's, I, I don't know. I don't think a biological man, a biological male should be going against women in an arena of sport. I, that's how I know. That's how yeah, I know. You know. That's how I know. There's something called common sense. We can start, dry, we, yeah. we can start dissecting. 
dissecting that as much as possible. But there, yeah, you know, there's a, there's something to be said for uh, centuries of collective wisdom that has informed the way so, you know society's norms and rules for quite some time, and that you know the burden of proof is on those who want to overturn those rules, as opposed to um, uh, the the idea that everything the, new is uh, 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 is. I think we almost need to be careful, though, Matt, because I, this is a weird thing to relate it back to, but. I was never more arrogant and bad at my job than when the Warriors were bad and I started writing about them. Interesting. Because it, it was because it was so obvious. A, I was new, but B, it was obvious that they were a clusterfuck of an organization. So it was easy for me to be arrogant and uh, just assume I knew everything and assume I knew what the bad decisions were and what the good decisions were because they were so incompetent. But then later on when they got good, I started realizing – I don't know anything about this sport. I didn't know mm -hmm. that there was this thing called hand signals that the coach uh, puts out there and uh, there are advanced scouts and they're stealing the the signals and there's this whole internal world. And then you realize you know nothing and you start learning more. And I think that there is this issue which it almost gets too easy of the most uh, elevated people in our society and the biggest corporations and the highest uh, levels of government are so obviously moon barking insane i do worry that it takes some of the pressure off us to think critically yeah yeah you don't want to be grabbing too much low-hanging fruit right i mean yeah. the uh, uh Aaliyah thomas of uh hey you, you you know still carrying a penis was on the boys swim team two years ago should not be swimming against the girls a team that that's an, an easy one but it gets on the other hand it's like god it's so obvious and it, it feels like there's so many people who are letting a pattern absurdity infiltrate the public consciousness just because they're scared of speaking out against it that well, you keep up you want to beat that dead horse well, there's an instinct of, to beat the dead horse they're scared of two things a is just being ostracized but b i think there's this other fear that's perhaps more profound which is what if i'm on the wrong side of history right what if i'm on the wrong side you know yeah. would you want to be that person who in 2011 says that you're against gay marriage uh that's not a position that is going to be looked at favorably even though yeah interestingly obama held that position but i guess yeah, nobody thought he actually percent yeah nobody thought he actually believed it i suppose so people don't really uh hold him to it but yeah i think there's that fear that you're going to be the uh, racist at the lunch counter in the 1960s photograph, effectively, by going against whatever uh, today's today's progress agenda is. Yeah. And so I think people people do have that fear. But then I just look and I go, well, where is this headed? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the argument I make. This is what I'm saying. And I I keep making it. I think the modern agenda has a proof of concept problem, mm -hmm. right? I think that it needs to actually demonstrate that it is at the very least correlated with society improving Yeah, for people to truly get on board in perpetuity. It is not demonstrating that. Things are not going well. Yeah. I've writing this in my most recent post, but you know you can go to a variety of polls. Financial concern is is really up there, and this is when people say, "Hey, the issue isn't culture, and it's not cancel culture; it's economic." And I go, "Yeah, but economic confers a lot of status and cachet to the cultural issues you're trying to push. You know, it's a lot easier to get people to go along with the cultural issues when you're making it rain. Not so easy when their savings are evaporating into the fucking ether." And they're being lectured about how they need to have some new 
ideological salad fork that they need to grab whenever they're <laughs> referring to a, a new group of people. I mean, it's harder to push this on people. You reach a certain breaking point. I'm shorting it. I don't think this is the way forward. I don't think it's going to be it, but I can't predict the future. And so I think a lot of people, it's not just that they're afraid of being ostracized now. They're afraid of being ostracized in the future and their children thinking that they were a bad guy uh, in this particular period of time. Yeah, but it's still in. And once again, I'm going back to uh, the temptation for those of us, you know, uh, vocal dissidents like you and I to keep on coming back to some some of these issues and whether or not that's just us being lazy or is this, you know, continuing to draw attention to items that need to be emphasized because people there because there is this this pressure to ignore them. I don't know. Yeah. It's it, that, that it is. It, you know, that's an interesting one to uh to swirl well, around, right? Because I, you know, I think the breaking point will be hit, and I think this is a disagreement we sometimes have. I think you're a bit more pessimistic. I think that we are going to have a correction. I do, and I actually think the engine of it, as I have written, uh, is going to be the group chat. I think the group chat is the big lurking giant out there that it, that is not just going to shake up our politics. I think it's shaking up our politics and it is all happening underneath the surface. It's where people are growing a political consciousness and having discussions about the madness that they're seeing. And it's all happening um, under the purview of the censors. And by the time it reaches a certain critical mass, it will blossom into political action and it will change things. At least and essentially your your thesis being and it, it, it does blend into a thesis of mine um, that, you know, it, with with social censure always hanging over people that they feel uncomfortable expressing themselves in corporate settings, un, uh, uncomfortable expressing themselves on social media. So they've retreated into group chats with uh, other like minds where they feel where they feel comfortable expressing themselves. Right. And I think and yeah. for some reason, you've got innumerable, infinite think pieces on the impact of social media, but you don't have that many think pieces on the impact of group chats. And you yes. you are you are going to turn out one of those think pieces on group chats. <laughs> yeah. Well, I that's that's what I see happening. I think sometimes what I try to do is just recognize a trend. You know, I'm not a very I'm not a brilliant person. I can recognize an obvious trend, right? Uh, it was obvious to me that the Zoomers are very sad and the Zoomer athletes are very sad. And so I wrote an article on that and that mm -hmm. article popped because it was an obvious trend that for whatever reason didn't seem to didn't seem to be getting talked about. And I think maybe it that dovetails with some of these things that we're discussing, which is things that are bad matchups are not discussed in media. And perhaps that was a bad matchup to notice this and see how it was going and see and how if you could yeah, elaborate before we get back to group chats, if you could elaborate yeah. on that, because I thought that was a really interesting piece in noticing the, you know, a true generational divide um, that is manifesting itself and becoming apparent with Gen Z athletes because they're the ones in their prime, you know, at least approaching yeah. their prime now. Yeah, I just we've had a few instances of Gen Z athletes getting depressed and quitting, and it comes on the heels of a lot of athletes elevating mental health as a, a topic of concern. And it started off, I think, good enough with DeMar DeRozan saying that he had uh, depression and anxiety, and he got a really good response. And I think he 
continued to persevere and he improved at least as a we I don't know what's in his mind but he improved as a professional and he didn't make excuses for himself in any kind of way and I think he was trying to let other people know that hey uh, some of us deal with this and I think that 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 was an admirable an admirable aim but in the aftermath of it, it, it the media loved that story they lapped it up so other athletes take that story to the media and then the media elevates them and they they lap it up and then you've got this odd circumstance where not only are the zoomer athletes sometimes pulling out of competitions and quitting but they're getting lavishly praised for it uh, yeah. simone biles for instance uh, in the olympics she had i think it was called the twisties um where you maybe lack some proprioception i'm not a gymnastics expert i didn't have any issue with her pulling out of uh, these competitions at the Olympics, but time made her athlete of the year for it, for yeah. taking a break from being an athlete. She's in a Powerade campaign where it's about how you should take pauses and quit. You know, Gatorade in the 90s, Matt, was about, uh, and Powerade was about ascending higher and trying harder. Now Powerade is telling you to quit. And that's what they're, they're you know, trying to use as an example. And so it's this, inverted uh this inverted world that they're selling where what's truly brave and what's truly bold is not facing adversity but running away from it and that's true bravery um and were you just saw that again to, and again an effort to to uh expand tolerance for weakness and failure and a, yes. a more sensitive empathetic approach towards weakness and failure we're now glorifying weakness and failure yes exactly and this is just something that was happening and naomi osaka who i was the most well-paid women's dentist star of all time has been pulling out of competitions and refusing to do media because they might ask a question about how she lost. And all you're seeing towards these athletes is indulgence, indulgence, empathy, empathy, indulgence, indulgence, empathy, empathy. And I think where I come at it from a different direction than so many in media is that, again, proof of concept. I don't see this working. Yeah. You know, I feel like we are we have this demand put on us for more and more empathy on all these issues, more, more. We need more empathy. We need more empathy on this, on on that. And I go to quote Dr. Phil, how's that working out for us? How's yeah. it working out for us? You know, are they do they seem happier? They don't seem happier. Naomi Osaka, for all the indulgent coverage, does not seem happier. No. Um, and so that's all I'm saying. And then to broaden it out, because I don't think it's just about them, I do worry about the kids. I do think it's a bad example. I do think it's a bad message. I don't think it's good to elevate um, every instance of narcissism and self-pity from the most famous athletes and to tell uh, America's youth that this is the way to go. So I just wrote about that and it popped and I was surprised. I was surprised the extent that it did resonate, even if I was pleased to see it, because I just think it was an example of it's right there. Everybody notices it. Nobody's really saying anything. And it, I think people do seem to ignore this because they assume that all these young athletes with riches and fame, and listen, the stories and the angst about young star athletes and whether or not they're truly happy, this is not new, right? I mean, you know, Jerry yeah. Maguire was a quarter century ago now, and, you know, that was part of, part of the Jerry Maguire shtick, but it seems like these, a lot of these young athletes, a lot of these Gen Z types, they're really unhappy. They're not like, yeah. hey, you know, might be living a little, might be, you know, 
um, living by some decadent values, young athlete with too much money and too much time on their hands and too much given to them. I mean, they're really unhappy. Like I think you quoted in the article, Charles Barkley even mentioned Charles Barkley has been around NBA players and pro athletes for the last 40 years. And he's like, no, these these young athletes now, these young oh. NBA guys, they seem to be miserable. Like, yeah, Adam that's Silver. Very strange signal. Dude, the craziest thing is that Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA at the Sloan conference a few years ago, said to the audience that, no, these guys are deeply unhappy. And this is the guy selling the league. This is <laughs> this isn't exactly I love this game. He's yeah. saying, no, they're deeply unhappy. Credit to him for his candor. Sure. And to be clear, I do have empathy to a degree. I feel bad for them. I do think that they are unhappy. But if they're unhappy, then we've got to ask ourselves why. And we have to wonder whether we're providing this incentive structure that's absolutely fucked, where we're telling people to do the opposite of what they should do. We're saying, focus on yourself. Focus on yourself, Naomi Osaka. Put you first. Put you first. Put me first. Simone Biles, incredible. You put you first. That's incredible. All of you put you first. Use your platform. Insofar as you're doing social service, use your platform for a cause, some abstract cause. Use that platform when that's not really the path to fulfillment. The path of fulfillment is connectivity with other human beings. It's giving of yourself. I know I say this as a narcissistic writer, but it's true. Um, you need to connect yourself to something bigger. And that's not a message that we're really extending. And I feel like we're losing a lot of the old wisdom. You're not supposed to say it. You get dismissed as somebody who's, I don't know, an old fogey or something. Get off my lawn. Yeah, get off. Get off. Yeah. Again, thanks, boomers, for completely stigmatizing old people as a concept. (laughs) Uh, They have stigmatized old people, criticizing young people for being soft and losing touch with like, you know, with uh, effective worldly wisdom. But that's the thing. Everybody's on to something. Everybody's on to something, right? Everybody is on to something. And yeah, I just, that's something that, that's a whole other thing that annoys me is this, this uh, cultural trope of the old person is always wrong in their critique, which again, it works better for a culture on the incline. It yeah. doesn't work as well when the culture actually is declining. Yes. In that instance, the old person, I don't know. Just might be onto something. Yeah, that that didn't an article come out this week in the Atlantic? Some polls about the mental health and happiness, you know, happiness ratings and anxiety and all all these infirmaries that Gen Z is experiencing. And I know we're coming out of the the pandemic, but God, I mean, it was a grim state of affairs. I mean, this this generation is really really unhappy, and yeah. it seems like a number of the kind of social fabric indicators that we figured were informative or useful in the 90s, right? Alcoholism, sexual activity, teen pregnancy, God knows what. It's like, it seems like we we, it, it, we solved a bunch of those issues, right? But that didn't translate directly into a happier generation. And that no. simply, uh, it very much goes to, you know, Ross Douthat's arguments about decadence is that there are some societies that they might not be polite, they might not be kind, but they're a lot more dynamic and yeah. the more dynamic societies are happier. And then once you become a drab society or a drab generation, that's really where where the existential angst starts to kick in. And it really seems to be true with these guys. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Yeah, it's almost like we've become Portland as a society where it's yeah. grim and neurotic. <laughs> 
it's uh we've 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 the- portlandified ourselves god what a trajectory for for that for that city uh that's yeah a whole it's been a strange one but you know something i wanted to ask about trajectory of another city because uh you in terms of uh, you know culture and a, a sports team reflecting the culture of a city and vice versa um I, I got to experience that with my childhood with the lakers organization and showtime reflecting the values and kind of the state of the city of the mm. loss of los angeles in the 1980s and vice versa right it's like that the two became one and interestingly enough i feel like you as a professional over the past decade were were front row witness to something similar in northern california with the Golden State Warriors uh, being dominant and having a mini dynasty, which coincided with the kind of cultural moment and business yeah. moment. Yeah, oh, of- I'm so glad you're asking this. Yeah, Sorry, I don't even. Like, I'm just so glad you're asking this. Yeah, no, no doubt. And I want to just read from it for just a, a your from a piece that you wrote on that topic for a second. I'd love to hear you elaborate on it. it. Said San Francisco really did have a moment, even if nobody outside the top tax bracket could join it. After decades spent in that nice Boston Seattle tier of town, Greater San Francisco had arguably suddenly leapfrogged New York and. LA and national relevance. The financial gravity had shifted from New York's finance world towards the Bay's VC possibilities, and the culture gra- cultural gravity had shifted from LA's movie scene to the Bay Area's social media platforms. Greater San Francisco was it uh, was it a new Rome, an international hub that would transcend the bounds of nationality. So this international is driven by technology, the social media platforms, international city, kind of hub of globalization. Um, a gilded era, just obscene wealth disparities and wealth accumulation coincides with the the you know championship run of the mini dynasty for the basketball team in that city, and you were there to cover it front and center. Would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, I almost feel like it's forgotten about that San Francisco had that moment already. It disappeared it, it, pretty quick. It disappeared very quick. It was yeah. this crazy ascent, completely correlated with the Warriors' crazy ascent. Uh, they started coming about in 2012 to 2013 and then really it's almost eerie the timing i know and they became this this uh world beating dynasty uh from 2015 to 2016 but then trump gets elected and that's when the warriors become decadent i mean still on top uh still less enjoyable but less enjoyable because they get Kevin Durant. And then, hey, the Warriors are good again. I mean, they're kind of, uh, they, they're not the favorite or anything, but they're at least enjoyable. They really should have crumbled a little uh, a little worse, I guess, to uh, completely make the parallel pop, even if they did have one year of being very much in the dregs. Mm-hmm. But it, it, was, uh, it, it was tethered to it. And I think what's a little interesting, too, is that the salad days really happened in Oakland while they were dreaming of San Francisco and while they couldn't wait to get to San Francisco and they wanted to build this just glittery palace on the last good piece of land. And what's funny to me about that as an aside is how did the Warriors get that last good piece of land for that uh, privately funded arena? There's no good land in San Francisco. You can't Mm -hmm. find it. They were stuck. Here's how it happened. Here's why it happened. Mark Benioff, who is the most powerful private citizen in San Francisco. He is the CEO of Salesforce, which is a company that uh, probably listeners of your show know, but a lot of people don't. But it it it, it just, San Francisco is in its shadow, just building after building, the most, tallest the, the building. Salesforce tower, the most prominent yeah. building in the city. Yes, and he has deep roots in San Francisco. I think his grandfather might have been in government there. So he runs shit in San Francisco. Um, and so one day, Mark Benioff uh, just calls up 
Joe Lacob, the owner of the Warriors, and says, hey, uh, I've got a piece of land for you. You know, if you want to buy it to build your arena, I've decided I don't need it for Salesforce expansion. We have just completely dominated downtown. It's all yours. I see Mark Benioff uh, doing a tour of the new arena a few years later. And uh, people are there, we're asking him about it. And, you know, what's the big appeal? What are you so happy about? And he shrugs and he says, I just didn't want to schlep all the way down to San Jose to see Elton John. I just didn't want to do that anymore. <laughs> That's why the Warriors have their glittery palace in San Francisco as a boomer. Didn't want to go down to San Jose to see Elton John. That's why. That's why they have it. That is the reason. That is why the Warriors have their billion-dollar arena is that Mark Benioff, uh, he just wanted a, a, a quicker commute to see Rocket Man. That's why it happened. And I know I'm digressing, but I'm just sort of thinking about the weird decadence of that time, how when the Warriors had their groundbreaking, they were having these cranes dancing like robots. And Lake of, mm-hmm. I remember, I was saying that the city is the greatest city in the world. It's gotten even better over the last 10 years. And then you could kind of tell that the worm was turning a bit because people mm-hmm. were going, I don't know about that. You know, I think it's it, it was a cool time. It was awesome to follow the Warriors during it all. Um, I miss I miss those days. The energy must have been incredible. Yeah, you can't go back, but the the energy was incredible. And being on the road, you get so many stories, and you can't you you can't do it forever. I think I got out at the right time, but uh, that parallel between the decadent ascent of San Francisco and the decadent ascent of the incredible Golden State Warriors for all their charisma was eerie, as you say. Mm-hmm. And uh, some other dynamics that are at play in the NBA and sports that some people might not think of, another article that you wrote, a uh, Substack piece that uh, caught a lot of eyes, was a- another one of these secrets or something that's hiding in plain sight that's kind of an open secret within the league of the power play between clutch sports and CAA and how clutch, you know, you've now got the most prominent NBA agencies that have, have melded each other and have become one with certain French with major city franchises. And it's really catching a lot of eyes around the league that the that agencies and teams have almost become one and that the power that that how power is exercised in the NBA um not that it was always pure but it seems to be even more condensed and even driven more by let's call it perverse incentives or odd incentives than yeah. it might have been in pri- prior generations yeah it's like the parasite takes over the organism i i call it the agency model one of these power agencies take over a team and start running that team and we've seen it a few times but it seemed to happen a little bit more so and in part because your lakers won a championship albeit uh, a bubble championship but they won a championship yeah you know they won a bubble championship but they got anthony davis who was a superstar and they got Anthony Davis because LeBron James uh, helped found Clutch Sports, and Anthony Davis was signed to Clutch Sports. And LeBron said, "Hey, uh, get me on the Lakers, do my bidding." And they did basically a hostile takeover of Anthony Davis from the New Orleans Pelicans. And so I think other people took notice and they said, "Look, this is just how it has to be, and we need to get in with agencies in the way uh, that we can." But Clutch is Clutch is a little bit different because. They're a smart business story in many ways. Rich Paul identified that people didn't just want an agency to negotiate their contract, that the players wanted to be aligned with something cool, right? Mm -hmm. 
and uh, these agencies, uh, they don't have names that are cool. We can say it, Matt. We can say that they have nerdy, dorky Jewish names, these agencies. Octagon. Wasserman, Wasserman doesn't sound cool. Wasserman doesn't sound cool. No. Uh, Glushan doesn't sound cool. So, mm-hmm. you know, Clutch Sports, uh, it's younger black dudes running it. And they have connections to superstars and connections to people in the music industry. And you hear from players, hey, why'd you sign with Clutch? Do you think they're going to negotiate your deal better? They go, hey, man, I just, you know, I think they can introduce me to some cool people, man. Like, that's that's, that's what you it, hear. Huh? And so um, that's a whole dynamic. But the other dynamic is there are so many here. Why did I cover this space? It doesn't seem related to the other issues that we're discussing on its face. But I think I almost have this weird maybe it's a moral Tourette's. How would you put it? Where I, I if I, if I notice something, I just feel like I, I just, I, I, Hey, I notice it. If I notice something and I know I'm not supposed to say something then I want to well, say it's something, the, uh, it's the stuff it, that everyone knows to be true, but feel, it feels yeah. uncomfortable acknowledging. I feel that I wish I could come up with a better metaphor for it, but it's that feeling of you've got a pimple or you've just got kind of got like a buildup and you're like, ah, I just want to do, I just want to release it. Um, and I, I was just looking at, these situations in the NBA play out where the media was acting like the principles in the story weren't the principles. They were acting mm-hmm. like the protagonists were some extras because mm-hmm. the agent was feeding them the news and they wanted to break the story first on Twitter. To what end? I still don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what's the point of it? I don't know, but that's the game that they're engaged in. And so what the agents demand is to do it in the way they want to do it. And to have the credit for having signed a deal, but not credit for some of these other machinations that would be not looked at so favorably. So in a lot of these situations, the agents are intensely powerful and they're causing things to happen in the league, but everybody's pretending not to know about it. Mm-hmm. And so that just seemed to be a good space for my website to uh, talk about some of it and say, hey, did you know that Dan Fagan RIP ran the Mavericks for a few years. And this is how Uh, (laughs) these people who because the NBA has these guys, these shadow figures, these people where the fans haven't heard of them. And they're just a collection of like the most powerful people in the NBA fans haven't heard of. I mean, there's a guy I have fondness for him. He lives in the hate Ashbury district of San Francisco. He's got a mullet. He's a boomer. Uh, He runs vast swaths of the NBA out of his Victorian in San Francisco. Uh, Warren Legary, mm-hmm. agent to a mm-hmm. bunch of coaches and a bunch of GMs. He invented Summer League. That's a power player right there. Yeah. Average fan doesn't know that people like this uh, are puppeteering certain situations. And I love that stuff. I love subcultures. I love uh, kind of revealing the magic trick. And it's all good stuff. It's good grist for the mill. And another one, another uh, person who occupies that category of power player unbeknownst to the average NBA fan, you mentioned one of your pieces named Lynn Merritt, who's a Nike executive, um, who was kind of critical to the LeBron James project at Nike and shaping LeBron James' career and a, a lot of things. And Okay, so if you are involved in the, the sports journalism culture wars and people taking sides on LeBron and his seeming, you know, kind of oddly, peculiarly manufactured image as a social activist where, but yet, you know, while, while he's trying to portray himself as Ali part two keeps on getting caught reading, um, you know, reading the literary material. Or, yeah. Where he keeps on, there's every picture of him holding a book. He's on the first page of the book, oddly enough, and can't seem to answer any questions about the book. Um, but one individual that seemed, 
didn't see from what you've described was kind of integral to uh, LeBron adopting this image was named Lynn Merritt at Nike. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about, you know, Nike's role and how some of these power players in the uh, athletic wear world kind of shape what we see from our star athletes. Yeah. Lynn Merritt, um, another guy I've got affection for, although he might be pissed off at me these days. He's <laughs> thought to be the behind the LeBron doing the Muhammad Ali uh, pathway towards trying to overcome Michael Jordan, perhaps not in titles, but in social relevance, which doesn't work because LeBron's just just not that guy. Yeah. Um, but uh, that was that was his, you know, his his idea from what I've been told. And Lynn is just one of these booming personalities. He's not, to my knowledge, a former athlete, but he's just this broad shouldered kind of deep voiced guy who projects a lot of charisma with the players and so the players want to sidle up to him because he's such a big muckety muck at nike and they all want to be the mm-hmm. face of nike that's the ultimate right and unfortunately for them lebron and lynn are uh, aligned lynn Merritt recruited lebron in that famous sneaker war uh when lebron was in high school between uh was it reebok and adidas and nike and i think might have people thought at the time overpaid for LeBron. But then again, he of course validates the hype and because he validates the hype, it validates Lynn boldly recruiting him and perhaps advocating for that lavish contract that he was offered. And so he rises at the same time as LeBron does, which we see that dynamic happen in a lot of institutions. There's Mm -hmm. a TV executive at ESPN named David Roberts, who, uh, was Stephen A. Smith's guy early uh-huh. on in radio and has risen up the ranks of ESPN as Stephen A. has become more and more important to ESPN. So it's that dynamic, and it's tough. I mean, I saw Lynn uh, kind of showing Kevin Durant around uh, in the 2016 Western Conference Finals before he signed with the Warriors after uh, one of the Thunder's victories when it looked like the Thunder were going to win that series. Um, And just kind of, uh, you know, Kevin would have probably gone wherever Lynn uh, said. And, you know, Nike, got to be a little careful here, Mm -hmm. but let's just say Nike wanted Kevin Durant to be on the Warriors and not the Oklahoma City Thunder. Now, who made the decision and why? How much of that comes from Kevin? Kevin would say it all came from Kevin. I know that much, but we know what Nike wanted. And the funny thing when you're a superstar athlete is it's arguable that the team is your primary employer. Nike is uh, typically who you're going to have the long-term deal with. LeBron James has a lifetime contract with Nike. Michael Jordan played for the Bulls. It's what we remember him as, but he makes more money from Nike in a year, he'll make more money in 2022 from Nike than all his combined earnings in the NBA as a player. Wild. So that's the primary employer. And if your primary employer, if your primary employer wants you to change uh, locations, as it were, I don't know. It could be a powerful incentive. And we don't get to see what goes on behind the scenes, by the yeah. way, Matt. We see the contract details for NBA contracts, we do not get a window into what Nike offers these guys. But there Mm -hmm. are whispers about this stuff all the time that, hey, you know, they're they're pulling uh, this guy, they're shutting this guy down. He's not going to play what would have been his rookie season because there are incentives baked into the contract that he has with Nike, and he's not going to hit those benchmarks because he's only going to play an X amount of games. You know, you hear that stuff all the time. And you can't necessarily verify it because 
it's just difficult to get that kind of access to the deals that they cut. So, um, yeah, how much of a role did Nike have in KD coming to the Warriors? All I can say is that Lynn Merritt was in the front row of that press conference and Kevin Durant hmm. came to the Warriors in that first press conference in Oakland and was happy and uh, shouting that we got them both about having uh, <laughs> LeBron versus Kevin Durant in a hypothetical finals. There's a lot of money involved over there, and yeah, I think it's it, in the consciousness. Well, I, I, didn't even, I didn't even break down the dynamic of why. I'm sorry mm-hmm. for doing that. Let's be as... Steph Curry, kind of like the fast rise and fall of San Francisco, uh, was rising quick with Under Armour and was a challenger to Nike before he got embarrassed about his uh, dorky looking shoes and the Warriors (laughs) lost 2016 finals. But, you know, for a moment, Nike really regarded Under Armour as a threat. And one way to neutralize the threat was to throw another superstar at the Warriors, a Nike superstar, to kind of dampen some of the individual shine that Steph had. And that's what they wanted. And really, that's kind of what happened. Yeah. So it worked. Yeah, the the amount of activity and motives that are directed by the desires and kind of the the business, you know, the the the, the war playing out amongst the, the shoe brands and the athletic wear brands and its impact on the actual game. I mean, the, this is where we've historically, it hasn't really been in the, in, in the sports fan consciousness, but we expect that uh, the desires or or the the kind of triangulation of athlete league and athletic company that's paying the athlete a lot like that's something that we imagine was going on behind the scenes impacting decisions although we don't we don't really know um, instead you yep. know now when we inject this new element of um, of you know uh, of trying to align yourself with social causes uh, or or hmm. that it's just another incentive you're layering on all these incentive after incentive that drives you just away no from the wonder, most primitive no wonder the these game. athletes are are cracking up and going crazy when you put it like that i mean it's just not simplified there's a lot of stuff that hey it, jerry Maguire, you know jet cushman cush is I, I just want to play jerry i just want to play there's not yeah. much ju- uh, I just want to play anymore. There's a very there's very little space for the modern pro athlete to just get up, go about at least a, a tier one or tier two. Get up, go about their business, collect their check, and go home. It's not not really the no longer the job profile. Um, but interestingly enough, with Nike, another one of your uh, highest performing pieces was I believe it was called Nike's End of Men. If we're going to talk again about how the most prominent brands in the sports world now seem to have like an open hostility to the tastes and preferences of your average sports fan and that was as we described earlier with ESPN and its coverage of so you know on a shift to social justice and social activism and Nike seems to have engaged in something very similar and that's what you recounted in in End of Men was this your highest performing piece uh well it was my kind of premiere sort of thing and I so it was kind of like the big splashy announcement. They want you to shock people. Mm-hmm. So it was the premiere essay. I do believe that it, it's at least my highest performing piece when it comes to page views, but I also made it free. So uh-huh. some other ones might have racked up more subscriptions because they had a paywall. Got it. And so here's how you put it. I thought it was really interesting. Nike must contend not only, oh, this is actually quoted the Financial Times. So the Financial Times describing this with Nike now trying to um, uh, both adopt a social justice bent but not offend its its customer base. Nike must contend not only with a radical shift in retail strategies but also the wider cultural reckoning with the intersection of race, gender, and power. In interviews with cur- current and former employees, executives, consumers, and retail partners, divisions emerge over how to tackle such issues while while remaining true to the spirit that has set the brand apart from other sportswear manufacturers. 
One question looms above the rest. Is it an end of an era for Nike? Your response. For all the talk of a racial reckoning within major industries, Nike's main problem is this. It's a company built on masculinity, most specifically Michael Jordan's alpha dog brand of it. Now, due to its own ambition, scandals, and intellectual trends, Nike founds masculinity problematic enough to loudly reject it. Finds masculinity problematic enough to loudly reject it. This is the biggest sports athletic wear brand on earth putting out commercials. This one, I believe, was for the World Cup, the land of new football, just was essentially another one of these patent absurdities of almost like a, um, a you know, kind of a social justice recruitment camp video. And this is supposed to be a <laughs> Nike commercial to sell shoes and cleats and and T-shirts and, and you know, and shin pads or God knows what. Right. Um, but this is this is what Nike had to adopt. It felt the cultural pressure to do so. And it, it, essentially spitting right in the face of a lot of people who would otherwise buy their products. I mean, you, you went on, you know, you elaborated on this. What are your thoughts? Yeah, there, there are a lot right there. I mean, that ad that you reference, um, the, the land of new football, it's presented by a little girl, and I'm trying to be nice, who's not the most athletic, <laughs> is what I would say. Uh, typically, Nike ads, they present you with athletic demigods, but in yeah. this case, no. And they're talking about how in the land of new football, uh, there's all this tolerance, all these new things. And uh, there's a woman breastfeeding. Uh, there are two men there are two men kissing, which is I'm not objecting to two men kissing, but it's you know, foot is this about soccer? Like what's going what's yeah. going on right here? This is very odd. Uh what's happening? Uh it doesn't really seem to be about uh the sport at this point. Um it just seems to be some sort of strange NGO psyop. Um so that was one of many ads. And this is again one of these things, Matt, where there's almost this disincentive against noticing how crazy things are getting yeah. because you become suspicious for being the guy who says so. And then you say to the person who doesn't like what you're saying, you say, well, what do you think of this? And they go, well, it's, you know, it's kind of a terrible, crazy ad. And you're like, okay, well, you know, well, okay. The other thing too is the pushback I, I would get on it is again, that, that boomerism that we've been handed down where you're mad because, uh, well, maybe not boomers. You it's don't a new like flavor. change. So yeah, you don't like change. And it's, it's got that intersectional flavor. Like, in the past, the ads were about you. And now they're about other people. And so you're mad at the change. It's like, no, these ads fucking suck, bro. These ads suck. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, even no offense, you're not the most athletic guy. I'm not entirely sure these commercials no. were about you. They weren't. A, no, they're not the yeah. most athletic guy. I wasn't looking to these ads to reflect whatever values uh, I needed, which becomes the other criticisms. Like, no, I'm looking at them as a reflection of culture, as a snapshot of culture. Why is this corporation doing this? Now, there's an economic incentive. Uh, I'm trying to make Fetch happen over here. I call it the undecided whale. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's this. Nike is the rare apparel company who has more male customers than female customers by a two-to-one margin. Yeah. Uh, so what do they obsess about all day? Is it uh, is it when they're trying to maximize shareholder value? Do they obsess over making their male customers happy? No, they obsess over, oh, my God, if we could do what we do with male customers, with female customers, uh, then, oh, my God, how much money would we make? It'd be insane. So they've got a mandate to think in that direction. Now, the way they do it is making 
horrific ads that appeal to nobody, but that's <laughs> generally what they're going for. That's what they're shooting for. Unfortunately, the ads are made by, uh, you know, the sort of <laughs> people out of college who have been brainwashed in this particular direction yeah. and uh, don't know how to make something that is charismatic at some level. Um, and so it doesn't it doesn't totally work. But then there's this other thing happening, which is that Nike had their own Me Too scandal and all these executives were ousted because guess what? Nike is a highly masculine company mm -hmm. that effectively was something between a frat and a locker room. And I'm not defending whatever happened behind the scenes. What I'm saying is this. These corporations have these scandals and they work it all out in public yeah. and they project their issues onto everybody else. And so that's why when you watch the Nike advertisements, you're almost witnessing an act of projection where they're lecturing you about sexism uh, like you did. And they're something. the last people like who have they're the last people who should be doing it. Yeah, it's like when you watch the Oscars in the aftermath of Me Too and they're just lecturing America like you, Joe, in Iowa need to stop getting these women on the goddamn casting couch and pressuring them for sex. You got to stop doing it. It's, it's high time you stopped. Joe so, in Iowa and his, his flower shop is like, hey, you want a couple of free bouquets? You know, yeah. come back to my cot in the back. I, I feel like this sort of projection has become an aspect of our of our culture and nike was this uh was yet another representative of it where they're working out what they've done uh with us towards the public and then i think the main point i was trying to raise because i didn't see it raised elsewhere and i think it's a little bit complicated uh it's this it's difficult to talk about um toxic masculinity actually is kind of real I mean, the people who say toxic masculinity often can't appreciate any of the upsides, right? Sure. They're just demonizing the whole thing. But there is something toxic to that competitive drive and will to conquer and kill. But we also kind of love it. And that's what's hard to articulate. That, as I said in the article, when Jennifer Lawrence's character in American Hustle is talking about how all the great perfumes are laced with something a little bit nasty in them, mm -hmm. that is almost that hook. We're watching The Last Dance with Michael Jordan, and we're kind of into what an asshole he is yeah. and how he just wants to crush everybody in his midst. And that is part of the charisma, not just of Nike, but of sports. And it's male, and you can almost see why there's this effort to reform it and purge it and sanitize it but there's no way to do that without the patient dying on the table there's just no way well, to do it's it it's also the so, driving force of accomplishment and creation yeah that's what that's drives accomplishment uh, that's what uh, achievement of creation of any sort anything that is enduring the the pillars of society we don't have with without that with without something that does generate some sort of competitiveness or desire to defeat or inherent hostility we don't have we, we don't generate anything in our society yeah. yeah i mean maybe this is a crazy analogy but it's almost like the constitution uh is the constitution perfect no uh if we were doing it all from scratch would we do it this way no but you can't just just rip the constitution away or a lot of things are going to fall apart mm -hmm. you you need to improve it on the margins you you can't just completely get rid of it or there's going to be some chaos i know some people might disagree with that but that's the analogy that um that that pops into my head and so i think that we've we've been living in an era where it almost seems like 
were trying to transcend our very humanity Mm -hmm. in a lot of respects and thinking that we can live in some utopian vision that's never going to be and not just admitting what we are and not admitting our own limitations and not just trying to you know, maybe improve or guide people or say, don't be an asshole, Mm -hmm. uh, but instead completely rework concepts that were not only workable, but were generative and helped society ascend to heights that nobody could have ever envisioned. And that just seems to be the moment that we're living in. Yeah. Yeah. As you say, show the proof of concept. And for all these lofty utopian ideals, the results don't seem to be coming in so well. And then you and I, you and I kind of the, the war against noticing, we noticed that the results haven't been so pretty and were of course dismissed as you know white male tears that you know it's just because we're we're it's no longer catering to us apparently um yeah. anyway so you know from all of this where, where does it all go right i i think a, a way for us to kind of you know end this uh, end this conversation would be what what are what are the cultural alternatives what are the you know what are the communicative alternatives and one that uh, you have gone to to much success and a lot of other people have found as the great as you know, one of the really the, the first rich um, and potentially enduring alternatives to what seems to be a corrupted media class is Substack. Um, and Substack keeps on getting involved in, you know, interesting narratives and, and stories from its kind of legacy media opponents. Um, but, you know, it doesn't really seem to be it doesn't really seem to be uh, uh uh, bothered by it or miffed by it at all because it keeps on, you know, much like a lot of the people who go to Substack, uh, uh, trending upwards in terms of success. It's finding good proof of concept. So yeah. interested where you see the kind of cultural conversation around sports going in terms of sports media and Substack's role in that. Yeah, I don't know if sports totally fits with Substack, at least mm-hmm. sports on the basis of sports. I know that I'm the number two Substack and the number one, he covers baseball daily. So I think he's found success, but it's generally more of a place for cultural commentary and political commentary. And so I'm not sure. I don't know if it's going to be the place for that. I don't know. if I, I don't think most sports fans, even though I've managed to get a good audience and make more money than I ever thought I would make, which is cool. And to be clear, I'm going to try to put that money back in the product and, and hire people and expand. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, like that's, there's success there and that's been cool. I I feel like for the vast majority of sports fans, um, they're going to be going to ESPN and the athletic and, and that's going to scratch that particular itch. And it's an unusual kind of person who wants to read about um, some of these things that we're noticing and, Mm -hmm. and talking about, even if a lot of people kind of, also notice they kind of i think sort of dismiss it and might even resent people like us for harsh in the buzz for pointing it out yeah i think that happens as well i mean that's a self-serving uh thing to think but i sometimes wonder if some of the pushback i get from people uh is because they just prefer not to think about it and to pretend it away um that's certainly something that happens as well. So I'm not sure if Substack's going to shake up the sports space. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not certain about it, but it certainly has shaken up the opinion journalism space. Yeah. Um and it, it it's man, I mean, it's everything we've been talking about. It, I do think that I I want somebody to write more about this. It's subjective, but it's not. We are in a cultural paralysis currently. We are. And you said there aren't good movies recently. It almost seems like it's when social media hits critical mass that you start going beyond 2013 
it gets sparse and you can make the economic arguments for why that happened. But I think we all know there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason why the comedians people still love are guys in their 40s and 50s. And there there aren't young people coming up that really uh, that are really broadly popular. I used to say that people go, what about Bo Burnham? Bo Burnham looks like he's going fucking insane. (laughs) Um, To say to again, refer to the Gen Z issue. So um, people are looking for outlets that can provide some sort of honesty and not be worried about the conversation and the social sanction. And so I think Substack has provided it. And it's it's unfortunate, though, man. I mean, it used to be different. It used to be I, I struggle to just come up with great liberal writers mm-hmm. in mainstream outlets. I mean, that that used to be something that you could find a whole lot of. Um I mean, that's a whole other trend and conversation. Maybe that's a different podcast. But as a writer, as I'm digressing and free associating, that's been one of the strangest things recently is that there's just this dearth of just good writers on the left. I know people, when you say that, they'll they'll bring up Ta-Nehisi Coates, but he lives in Paris and I think writes about an article every two mm, years he's now. He's kind of tapped yeah. out. You know, good credit to him, by the way. You sure. know, credit to him for getting the fuck out of here. Yeah. Uh, you want to <laughs> you know, know part and, of it. Yeah, it, but you're just not you're not seeing that in legacy media. You're not seeing people really coming with it, and um, well, you almost, are seeing it. It almost feels like the most interesting aspect of modern culture and content is long form podcasting. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And by the way, outside of the daily, you're you're not really seeing a lot of that either. You're yeah. not really seeing a lot of legacy, what we might call blue world, but we might call liberal. Uh, you don't see them coming out with um, podcasts that people really resonate with. And I think a lot of that has to do with the looking over your shoulder aspect and being worried about having to slot your opinions into this uh, obstacle course of social acceptability mm-hmm. versus Joe Rogan, who's just going to get drunk and high and chill with his friends. And people are going to relate to listening to a human being talking for a few hours and seeming interested in something. So, um I think that's going to have cultural ramifications. Uh, The gap in, I guess we could call it art uh, right now, I think is going to, I don't know what that's going to mean, but it means something. And Mm -hmm. it's not getting, I I think it's not getting remarked on as enough. We're talking way too much because for selfish reasons, you know, they want all the market share. They want all the eyeballs. So they pretend to be horrified by things Joe Rogan said a decade ago. Uh, They really just want, they want the microphone, Uh, but they talk too much about that. They don't talk enough about how, where are your people? Why aren't you succeeding? Why aren't you winning? Mm -hmm. Where are the legacy media liberals who are doing anything outside of the daily? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know where they're at. I don't see them. Um, I don't think they're really making waves. Uh, Slate Culture Gabfest had a good foothold, but I think they got trapped in that dynamic. And you don't want to listen to people talk about culture if they're going to be careful. It's yeah. boring. Thank you. We, we, it might it it might take hitting rock bottom. Maybe the just abject failure of CNN Plus might put some of the writing on the wall as Discovery takes over Warner Media. You get new ownership for some pretty big media outlets. Maybe they say it's time to clean house. Time to kind of you know. Uh, kind of reconnect with some of their roots and, and some of their principles that that they you know rode to prominence back in the 90s and 2000s 
I mean, part of the crazy thing, and now that I think about it too, is that people who you just consider on the left have been purged. I mean, we're talking about journalists one would want to read. Great writer, Matt Taibbi. I yeah. mean, what what would he be considered these days? He's been effectively uh, he he's been he's not in good standing, I suppose, even if he is. Uh, incredibly successful um and glenn greenwald obviously is another example and uh he is kind of he has done things almost directly to piss them off of going on tucker carlson and everything else and so he's not in good standing and even a matt iglesias who i think is more in line with a normie democrat um is not considered in good standing so they've almost they've almost done it to themselves in a way and uh they've they've ousted these people as though they can replace them but where where are the prospects coming up? You know, who's doing the scouting? The, the bench. bench is not there. The bench is not there. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the phenomenon that you that you uh, mentioned right there of kind of, uh, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation about this current era of cancellation and sur surveillance just not being in line with, you know, not being conducive to human flourishing. Right. You know, to, no. to us showing off our best. But hopefully in no. this conversation, we showed uh, you our best. Ethan it was fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, the, your your approach, you, your unique ability to articulate, you know, all the contours and 360 degrees of where culture content uh, media and the way we communicate intersect with sports um it's you're, you know it's going over very well it's finding an amazing audience and very well deserved so wanted to thank you for coming on tonight and sharing it with us uh thanks to you uh and uh hey man just keep keep working that radio voice dude you've got that great radio voice <laughs> i appreciate it my friend so why don't you tell everybody where they can find you uh, House of Strauss, Substack.com. Subscribe today. I promise I will make it worth your while. Awesome. I, I, I said you get a free uh, free episode. Uh, you, whatever I fire up the Patreon, you get a free subscription <laughs> to the prevailing narrative if you don't think Ethan's is the best fucking sports and culture uh, <laughs> publication that you're going to find. So, Ethan, thank you once again for joining us tonight. This is the prevailing narrative. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.